When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken and happy birthday. It's been a year since we started posting these videos on YouTube. Back uh, in March 18th of last year, everything was shutting down because of COVID, including our in-person classes at the Institute where I'm teaching. Uh, and so I figured on a whim almost, I might as well start this channel and, and begin filming lessons and posting them. Expecting, hopefully, that a couple of hundred students of mine would be able to tune in and at least keep up with what we were studying and come follow me. Well, it's been an amazing year, thanks to the hunger for spiritual things from so many of you around the world. Really, my hat is off to each of you who just wants to dive into the scriptures and go verse by verse and, and word by word at times to understand the things that Heavenly Father would have us learn. I know some of you have been with me since the beginning, and my hat's really off to you as you endured very poor audio and video quality and a very awkward host trying to get used to staring into a camera and, and teaching scripture. But we just hit our three millionth view in this year, which is amazing to me. Uh, I don't know how many on, on Facebook to you missionaries out in the world. And on the audio-only version of the podcast, which we started only about six months ago, uh, we have about a third of a million downloads on that as well. So again, I'm, I'm just grateful that you would be willing to let me into your home and heart to be able to study Scripture together. And that's really all it is. There's not really many bells and whistles on this channel. Just a bunch of wonderful people around the world that want to immerse themselves in the Word of God. So thank you for allowing me to be a part of that. Today we're covering section 29 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Only one section, but talk about deep, because we're talking about the second coming. If you remember our thesis statement back from section 1, prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come, for the Lord is nigh. This book of scripture would become almost an instruction manual of how to prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And not just how to prepare ourselves, but how to prepare the world for that all-important event. We see it really focused for the first time here in section 29. We'll see it again in section 43 and section 45 and section 88. It keeps coming up. And I've heard some, some really interesting talks out there on the second coming. It seems like that's a subject that, that quickly goes viral on YouTube. And because of that, I've had a lot of students and, and others of you out there asking me, what do, you, what do you make of this? What's your take on all of these, on these viral videos that are going around YouTube about the second coming of Jesus Christ? particularly as far as where we happen to be right now on the timeline. Now, as I've watched several of those in order to be able to weigh in intelligently to my students, two things have hit me. And I don't, I don't, don't know which ones you've seen, if any. Uh, I, I won't speak to any one specifically. But overall, I'm on the pro side. I'm very grateful for how seriously people seem to take the scriptures and the words of modern prophets. There's a faith there, a testimony there, an honest desire to help people prepare for the coming of Christ. And all of that is wonderful. I applaud. The one thing that I get a little nervous about is sometimes, at least some of the ones that I've watched, how specific they become in their timeline. With the paths of solar eclipses, for example, crisscrossing the United States until X marks the spot in Missouri. 
and, and timing things to the point that we're in the, the midpoint of the Great Tribulation. Could we be? Perhaps. But again, my concern there is if we make things so specific as to the time, while it makes things, it ramps up the applicability and the relevance and the urgency for us right now, since we happen to be living in this time, my concern is, what does that mean then for all of this scripture, for everyone who's come before us, and very potentially, everyone who will come beyond it? You see, by, by limiting the focus to this exact moment in history, we've almost made the scriptures irrelevant, or at least less relevant to all those who've come before. And believe me, those who first received these revelations thought that they were speaking directly to them just as much as we think they're speaking to us. And guess what? Both groups are correct because there is an eternal applicability to Scripture. Now, I want to be careful and sensitive here, but I also want to be clear. You see, you know me, I'm a fan of proving contraries, right? That we're trying to strike a balance between opposite goods, both, both sides being true here. And with an urgency and a zeal on one side that, that is probably driving so much of this uh, video virality as people want to tune in and when's the second coming? I don't want to miss it. But on the other hand, well, how about the patience and steadiness that no matter when the Savior comes, today, tomorrow, or a century from now, hopefully not that long, uh, that we'll be ready for it. The slow and steady wins the race approach. You see, that's why with all these videos that are out there, far more important than content, in my opinion, is reaction and how an individual viewer or listener is going to react to those things. Because remember, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. It helps us stay in the celestial center of the straight and narrow path. It keeps us away from either extreme. So if someone out there has been overly complacent or apathetic about the second coming, thinking, ah, it's never going to happen. If one of those videos helps move them towards a sense of desire to prepare for that event, then I'm all for it. That's a good reaction. But if they're already preparing, if they're living a diligent, faithful, obedient life, and watching a video like that pushes them over the extreme towards some kind of overzealousness or fanaticism, then that's not the, the reaction that the Lord would want, or I'm sure the reaction of those who are making these videos would want. So that's kind of where I come down on the matter. If it's pushing people to the extremes, we have a problem. If it's helping people find the center of the path, balancing the extremes, proving the contraries, then wonderful. See, I have two things driving this, historically. Uh, one is what they call the Great Disappointment. In the days of Joseph Smith, there was so much millenarianism, which is a fancy word of saying excitement and zeal about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Honestly, you look at so many of the hymns that were written in the early days by Parley P. Pratt, for example, or W.W. Phelps, and a lot of them are just laser-focused on the coming of Christ. There were missionaries, a little overzealously in the early days, that would go around preaching not just the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the gospel, but because the Book of Mormon was a sign that the Father was beginning his work of gathering Israel from the four quarters of the world, they honestly thought, and some were, very, were overly specific, saying, oh yeah, three to five years max. Now, hindsight is always 2020, but it's been a lot longer than three to five years, right? The Great Disappointment actually refers to a group called the Millerites. They weren't a separate church, but they were beginning to uh, fanaticize, might not be an, over, an exaggeration, but to, to get people overly worked up about the second coming of Jesus Christ with a very specific date in mind. A man named William Miller, a very simple man, a farmer, I believe, had been raised Christian, 
then became a deist, uh, skeptical of revealed religion entirely, but then eventually came back to the Bible and fell in love with it, which is a good thing, but became so specific in his interpretation of Scripture, which is not necessarily a good thing, that he began crunching the numbers. Well, if a thousand years with man is a day with God, and it's this many days, and time times, and half a time, and what's the number of that, and then those multiply and carry the one. Anyway, he goes through all of this from Ezekiel and Daniel and so on, until he says, there it is. 1843, that's when Jesus is going to come. And he even got more specific than that. On a specific day in 1843, the second coming will occur. And what began as mere curiosity by some people, honestly, it spread like wildfire. To the point that even Latter-day Saints were asking Joseph Smith about it. Is, is this guy legit? Later on in the Doctrine and Covenants, we'll see this, when Joseph asks the Lord himself, second coming? Are you going to tell me the time? I mean, did you tell William Miller? Are you not going to tell me? The Lord's response to Joseph, by the way, is classic. He basically says, Joseph, I'll tell you what. You want to know my, the timing of my coming? By the time you turn 85, you'll see me. And Joseph's like, sweet. Oh, wait. What do you mean by that? Does that mean you're going to come before 1890 when I turn 85? Or does that mean I'm going to die before I turn 85 and I'm going to see you? Which is going to come first? You coming to me or me coming to you? Or is it some other kind of preparatory vision or visitation that I'll receive? And the Lord's response is basically a shrugged shoulder. Mm -hmm. And Joseph is left in that ambiguity and confusion. And then the Lord says, trouble me no more concerning the matter. As if to say, Joseph, quit asking me these kinds of questions. There is a purpose in my non-specificity as far as the second coming is concerned. He does the same thing to Daniel in the Old Testament where Daniel is being shown all these apocalyptic visions and preparing for the last days. And, and Daniel is saying, well, how much time until that happens? And the Lord's like, time? You want to know about time? I'll tell you. Time, times, and half a time. How's that? And again, Daniel is thoroughly confused. He says something along the lines of, I heard the words, but did not understand. It's like, what are you talking about? And the Lord, again, prefers the, on the one hand, this just enough clearness that there's going to be signs of the times and you need to prepare, but also just enough ambiguity that the words will apply to anyone who needs to prepare for either potentiality, either the Lord coming to them or them coming to the Lord. Now, I know a lot of people struggle with that. and like, ah, why isn't he just more clear? I'll explain that in just a minute. But I read an interesting book years ago that, would, that, that pegged itself as a history of the end of the world. Now, that sounds odd. History is past. Are this is going to be a history of the end of the world. How does that work? Well, this book was a reception history of the book of Revelation. Now, the history of the book of Revelation would be studying the book itself and what's the text in it. It's an amazing book. I, I wish we had time to, to do lessons on all of that. But this particular book was a history of its reception. In other words, how have people treated the book of Revelation ever since it was written? And it was a fascinating history. Now, this, the, the historian who wrote it was not a believer. And that became obvious. Here's this incredible prophecy, but it never ends up getting fulfilled. And generation after generation, you have people reading it and being all worked up by it and getting very specific as to its, its interpretation and its fulfillment. But it ends up becoming almost a, well, who's the beast of the, of the week? Or 666, well, whose name and numbers can we manipulate and so that it fits? And so it, it becomes every generation has a new beast, but it never actually takes place the way it's all described. Now, that's the skepticism of its author speaking. To me, as a believer, 
as I read the book of Revelation, or things like section 29 and 43 and 45 and 88, or Joseph Smith Matthew, which is like signs of the times central. Well, how do I approach it? Knowing that reception history of the book of Revelation? Well, it's scripture. And remember, scripture is meant to be eternally applicable. That's why it resonates generation after generation. There's an afterlife of scripture that goes far beyond. It's like classics in literature. You can't pronounce something a classic until a lot of time has passed to be able to recognize that, wow, a lot of different people in different situations and circumstances find resonance in this particular literature. It speaks to people in all kinds of different contexts. That's one of the things that makes something a classic. Well, when it comes to prophetic writings, that's one of the things that makes something scripture. So call it eternal applicability or what I call the principle of perpetual relevance. That to me is the power of, of prophecy, the power of books like the book of Revelation. The fact that it keeps resonating generation after generation and that each generation finds people in their current context that describe, that embody the, the, the mark of the beast. That lets me know that the scriptures are doing what they're supposed to. Remember their me true meaning and intention. And what is the intention of this kind of prophecy? To help us prepare for our reunion with the Redeemer. In fact, the, the great Frederick Farrar, who wrote the book, The Life of Christ, not a member of our church, but that book was, was in some ways an inspiration to James E. Talmadge when he wrote Jesus the Christ. Uh, if you've read Jesus the Christ, I highly recommend you also read The Life of Christ. It is eloquent, it is moving, it's beautiful. Get yourself a good Easter present. But the author of that book, a wonderful Anglican clergyman, if I remember correctly. And this applies to the book of Revelation and what we'll study today perfectly. Farrar said, Keep hold of the certainty that the object of prophecy in all ages has been moral warning infinitely more than even the vaguest chronological indication, since to the voice of prophecy, as to the eye of God, all time is but one eternal present. See what he's saying there? What is prophecy all about? Prophecy is meant to help us live our lives, not just to, to synchronize our watches. It's more about moral warning than it is about some kind of chronological timeline. Because like I just said, the former is eternally applicable. It's perpetually relevant. The, the latter is, is very specific, highly urgent, but only for that one time. No, we want everyone to be prepared to meet their maker. And, the, and books like this will help us do so. Now, don't take this to the extreme of thinking, oh, well, then are we just uh, making figurative everything there is about, about the second coming? Unfortunately, liberal Protestantism has moved in that direction to the point that they've kind of spiritualized or made everything non-literal, including the second coming of Jesus Christ. They, they took the resurrection, for example, and said, well, that's not scientifically possible. So the resurrection must be a metaphor for something else. Like the apostles kept Christ's teachings alive. And so, and so he kept on living. But let's call it that the resurrection. Or in terms of the second coming, in, in more liberal Protestantism, the approach is, well, it's on us. We have to be able to pull off social justice and peace on earth. And once we do... That's the spirit of Jesus. And so the spirit of Jesus has returned to the earth. That's the millennium. That's the second coming. There's nothing literal there. Now, as Latter-day Saints, that is not our approach. We are literalists as far as the second coming of Jesus Christ is concerned. What's the 10th article of faith? 
which is probably the, the least memorized of all 13. We believe in the literal gathering of Israel and the restoration of the 10 tribes. That Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent. And then this part, that Christ will reign personally upon the earth and that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisical glory. To reign personally? Yeah, that's a literal interpretation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we're sticking with that, as we should. But in our preparation for a literal second coming of Jesus Christ, there is a danger of taking every verse of Scripture literally. And we'll see some of that today. In fact, when I was in divinity school and being uh, introduced to this non-literal hermeneutic of Scripture, uh, this figurative second coming that's out there, I happened to be talking to my dad, who was a sealer in the Los Angeles temple. Uh, and uh, he was also kind of like the coordinator for sealings there. And a general authority, uh, an emeritus member of the 70, had come to Los Angeles to seal his granddaughter, I believe. And so my dad was showing him around that this is where things are in the L.A. temple and so on. And he asked him, so as an emeritus member of the 70, you're, you're retired, so to speak, what do you do now? And he laughed and he said, anything the prophets or the apostles ask us to. And some are temple presidents or some are this or some are that. And my dad said, well, do you have an assignment? He said, yeah, I'm responsible for Adam on Diamond. If you remember last week when we talked about this great second coming sacrament meeting, well, that perked my dad's ears up. It's like, wait, you're in charge of, of, of Adam on Diamond? What do you do? He said, oh, well, just every year or so, I'll, I'll go down and I'll, I'll talk to the senior missionaries that are mowing the lawn, so to speak, and, and, and just making sure that the land is, is, is beautiful. In fact, yeah, it's amazing that when you go to Adam on Diamond, that, that's all it is. It's just fields. It's like farmland. And yet for those who go, so often they say, I was shocked at the power and the spirit that I felt there. Even though it seemed like there was nothing to see. Well, there will someday be something very incredible to see there. But that's what had me chuckling as my dad shared this experience. That this Emeritus 70 would go and see Adam on Diamond and then go back to Salt Lake headquarters and report. These, how, these are how things are going. What had me laughing was on the one hand, here I am with this completely figurative approach that, oh yeah, social justice and peace on earth. There's the second coming. And on the other hand, we're basically setting up chairs at Adam on Diamond. Uh, to take the, a literal approach and urgency without becoming overly zealous balanced by a patience that doesn't become apathetic. We're trying to prove the contraries here as far as the timing is concerned. In fact, to put it simplest, and to you visual learners, to give you a, a chart to, to hang your hat on, think about the difference between a second coming that is, is promised to come soon and one that seems to be postponing itself to be late. Kind of there's the fast approach or the slow approach. When will the coming of the Son of Man be? Well, both sides need to be there. Here's the, here are the contraries of the second coming. On the fast or soon side, you get the signs of the times. The Lord wants us to be prepared. But on the slow or late side, you get the no man knoweth the day nor the hour side of things. I mean, if we've learned anything from human nature, it's if we have a due date, then we know how long we can afford to procrastinate, right? If you've had any experience like that in, in high school or college yourself, Imagine the professor saying, okay, everything uh, that your whole grade revolves around this one paper. And he tell, explains the assignment, but doesn't give you the due date. Would, would you feel a little nervous? What would you do? You, wouldn't you be raising your hand? Well, well when's it due? It's, uh, I don't know, sometime during the semester. Oh, great. If I don't know the due date, then what do I have to do? 
I have to start writing the paper right now. I need to have it prepared so that at any moment, if the professor says, okay, today's the due date, hand it in, I have something that I can, that I can submit. If, on the other hand, he lets you know, oh, the, the last week of the semester, that's the due date. Well, now I know I don't have to start the paper until the second to last week of the semester. Great. And the Lord wants to avoid that procrastination of the day of our repentance. And so he's trying to balance himself of how clear can I be? I want them to be prepared. I'm not trying to flunk anyone out. I, I don't want to, this is not a pop quiz. So I'm going to give them signs of the time so they have things to prepare. But I'm also not going to be overly clear on the actual day or hour. Because again, being too specific might help one generation, but it makes every other generation feel that they're off the hook. And the same things that will prepare them and the earth for the second coming will also prepare them and others for the day where they return to the Lord. So back to our chart. On the fast side, you get the Lord saying frequently throughout Scripture, Behold, I come quickly. And on the slow side, you also get him saying, Ye need not say that the Lord delays his coming. You see that in 3 Nephi 29. And on the entire chapter of 2 Peter chapter 3, where people are like, why, why is this taking so long? Is the Lord the one procrastinating? Well, no. We'll see more of that in a second. On the fast side, the soon side, you get the Lord's caution that unless those days, the last days, unless they're shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. You see, Satan's building up momentum also. And as wickedness grows worse and worse, it only becomes harder and harder for us to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's the Lord telling us, if he doesn't shorten the days, nobody's going to make it. We, we have to speed things up. He needs to come quickly for all of our sake. But on the other hand, as we see in 2 Nephi 2, the days of the children of men were prolonged. Wait, wait. On the one hand, you're trying to shorten the days because it's only getting harder. Well, why on earth would you prolong our days? Well, because you have some lessons to learn and you have some things to repent of, and that can take time. So no wonder on the one side, Amulek will tell us not to procrastinate the day of our repentance. But on the other hand, Peter will reassure us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, by shortening the days, there's less time to sin. But by lengthening them, there's more time to repent. Can you get a sense that the Lord is caught between a rock and a hard place? Our propensity to sin, as well as our, our difficulty sometimes in repenting? I mean, I want to speed it up for this group that's trying so hard and they're just holding out to, to, the, to, the, end, to the finish line. But I need to lengthen it for this group that still needs to change what side of the field they're on. I just can't unplug the scoreboard and, and call it a game just because we happen to be winning right now when the other team has all the momentum. You see, I, I realize that the other team has all this momentum. We do need to end the game quickly, but there are still children that I love on the other sideline that need to come to their senses and cross the field and join our side. It is a, an incredible balancing act on the Lord's timetable as well. It's one of the reasons, again, you see from 2 Peter and elsewhere in Scripture, where the Lord says, I come as a thief in the night. There's the fast approach. He's just going to dart in and dart out kind of a thing. You, you never know when it's going to happen. On the other hand, on this slow or late, you get the Lord's statement in, in Matthew 24 or Joseph Smith Matthew, 
that as the light of the morning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. That doesn't exactly sound like thief-like speed, does it? That is a gradual sunrise as the light begins to extend across the earth. On the one hand, you get Peter saying that we need to be looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. We run towards it. And on the other hand, you hear James say, let patience have her perfect work. So what are the pros of this fast and soon approach? Urgency, zeal. You're going to be working and, and diligent and, and trying to prepare. But what are the cons of that side? It can lead to overzealousness and fanaticism. And, and you sometimes see that. The great disappointment was, was a real thing as people were selling their property. Who needs it? That they were, they were giving up about their future. Well, there's not going to be one. Let's just get rid of everything and we'll gather in a field somewhere and there in 1843 and just be on our toes, ready for the coming of Christ. And then on the other hand, what are the, what are the benefits? What are the pros of a, of a slow and steady, kind of the, the late approach to the second coming? It's our patience. It's our steadiness. It's our willingness to endure. We prepare for our future because we'll, we'll have one. We'll raise our children. We'll go to college. We'll get married. We'll, we'll live as if I have all the time in the world. Now, again, what are the cons of that? Well, you can grow apathetic. You can grow complacent. You can procrastinate the day of your repentance and your preparation. That's why we have to have both. Again, do you see why the Lord is proving contraries here? The pros of the fast approach overcome the cons of the slow approach and vice versa. And that's always what contraries do. So please don't be one of the five foolish virgins, not preparing ourselves, not adding oil to our vessels. But on the other hand, can you imagine if the five wise virgins had been so overzealous and fanatical about all of this that they actually started the wedding feast before the bridegroom actually came? I mean, you don't want the bride and groom to miss their own wedding, right? I mean, couple that parable with the parable of the marriage of the king's son. Those two should go hand in hand because they're teaching the same topic, right? Marriage, second coming. And what's one cause for delay? The invited guests haven't yet shown up for dinner. And the wedding must be provided with guests. And so go out into the, the highways and byways. Beat the bushes. Find anyone who is willing to come. Gather Israel on both sides of the veil. Prepare the earth for the second coming. The principles that those parables teach, the principles we'll learn today in section 29, they are eternally applicable, perpetually relevant, suggesting that to the Lord, how we live is infinitely more important than when we live. So let's learn from section 29 how we should live. Now the specific context behind this revelation to me is fascinating because it's such a big picture idea. The second coming of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, the world will know. And yet who's the Lord speaking to directly in section 29? Joseph Smith and six elders. I mean, this, this is a pre-conference revelation that they're preparing for another conference of the church, September of 1830. And there's six elders there. I mean, John Whitmer, who writes the heading of this in, in the original manuscripts, said that, well, six elders, Joseph Smith, and three other members. Wow, now we have a whopping 10 people 
and, and to me, it's, it's, I'm amazed that the Lord doesn't have to wait for some massive audience. Hey, where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I also be. You guys are way beyond the scriptural minimum. You want, you want some big picture items to talk about? How about the second coming? I mean, a more famous version of this idea is when Joseph and, and the early saints, basically almost the whole church, is gathered in this little one-room schoolhouse and talking big things about the church eventually growing to fill North and South America, to grow and fill the earth. Well, bold language for a bunch of people that can fit the church into a schoolhouse. Well, now there is no schoolhouse large enough to contain the family of God that is spreading out across the earth to gather their brothers and sisters home, to prepare the world for the coming of the Savior. And just as Joseph and those gathered in that schoolhouse would think big thoughts, I love that the Lord sees a very small gathering and uses them to teach of a, a very large one. In fact, it was the gathering that was kind of driving this. In fact, section 28 that we studied last week, the, the, the false revelations that Hiram Page was receiving on his seer stone had to do with the gathering of Israel as well. And so this is on everybody's mind. And the Lord wants to put these, these things into proper perspective. You see, back to John Whitmer's heading for this revelation. He said that, the, that those 10 people had come together because they understood from Holy Writ, so they'd been doing their scripture study too, that the time had come that the people of God should see eye to eye. I mean, remember, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon was the sign that the Father's work was, was commencing upon the earth to gather Israel and prepare the world for the second coming. Well, we've got the Book of Mormon. We're reading it. It's, it's been published. We're spreading it. Samuel Smith's got a knapsack full of them, and he's going around preaching the gospel. So what does that mean? Is, it time, is this the gathering? Is it time to see eye to eye? Now, I love that language. They're quoting Isaiah 52, which is one of those chapters that kept coming up in the Book of Mormon. It says this, Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. See, that's what we're trying to build. That's what we're gathering for. Is it time? Are we seeing eye to eye on this? Remember, if Zion is being of one heart and one mind, dwelling together in righteousness, no poor among, so much unity in, in every criteria of Zion. It's can we see eye to eye on things? That doesn't mean we have to see from the exact same perspective. In fact, by seeing eye to eye, two eyes, having two of them instead of just one gives us depth perception. We really see things far more clearly this way. But are we seeing eye to eye on this as far as the goal is concerned? Abinadi quoted that verse as he was teaching the wicked priests of Noah. In fact, he quotes it twice, once at the beginning of his explanation of Isaiah and again at the end. It's almost bookends of this is what we're trying to accomplish. Come on, King Noah. I have the eyes of a seer. You are living in darkness. Can, can we somehow see eye to eye that we need to change things and prepare? When Jesus came among the Nephites, he quotes this verse as well. In fact, he also does it twice and puts it in the context of the gathering of Israel in the last days. So I love this. You've got this small gathering of saints, but is it time? Are we seeing eye to eye? Well, the Lord begins to respond to their question. 29 verse 1, listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Redeemer, the great I Am, whose arm of mercy hath atoned for your sins. Now, I mentioned this back in section 1, 
that often things begin with a, a call to attention. Hearken is the first word of the Doctrine and Covenants, right? And so many of the revelations we will begin with similar language. So here, listen to the voice. But often as the Lord introduces himself at the beginning of a revelation, pay close attention to this, revelation by revelation, that often he'll begin by saying something about himself that puts in perspective, that frames in a way, everything that he's going to say after that. So in this revelation, that's going to be talking about the second coming. And in fact, a lot of scary signs of the times that go along with it. Honest, believe me, section 29 doesn't make a good bedtime story if you're reading to your children. Uh, but in the, in the context of that, how does the Lord want you to view it? Through the lens of the great I am. I'm in charge here. I know what's going on. And the lens of your Redeemer. I know that there's going to be mistakes made. Believe me, you can't live through the last days and escape unscathed. But I'm your Redeemer. And best of all, my arm of mercy hath atoned for your sins. You and I together, we've got this. My grace is sufficient. So as you navigate these last days of trouble and gloom, the light of the world it will be with you. And my arm of mercy is forever outstretched. I actually love the, the, the juxtaposition of those two mental images. An arm suggests God's strength. It's why he talks about the arm of the Lord will be revealed and, and the sword of his word is in it. There's strength, there's power in his arm. But here he doesn't call it his arm of justice or his arm of power. He calls it his arm of mercy which is such a gentle and reassuring image, which we'll need in these last days. So in that same image, the, whose arm of mercy, you see strength, there's the arm, and softness, there's the mercy. In some ways, it's both the male and the female, the way we often describe things. Whereas I've heard it said, I think it was President uh, Howard W. Hunter was, that was described this way, as a man of velvet and steel. I love that. The mercy, there's the velvet. The arm, there's the steel. We will need both of them as we navigate these last days. And then with this image of a merciful arm extended, he then couches that in language that should be familiar to us based on what we know from Matthew 23, which is right before Jesus teaches the signs of the times, or 3 Nephi 10, which is in the midst of all this destruction right before the first coming of Jesus Christ among the Nephites. What's the imagery? Verse 2, who will gather his people, even as a hen gathereth her chickens, under her wings. Now do you sense the arms of mercy being extended? This is the hen's wing. Even as many as will hearken to my voice and humble themselves before me and call upon me in mighty prayer. Now, notice what he just taught there. I love this verse. Again, think in your mind the barnyard scene where this hen is clucking frantically and reassuringly to her chicks to come and gather. There is danger outside. But if you will come and, and huddle under, under the protective embrace of my wings of mercy, then you'll be safe within, no matter what happens to me without. I am willing to face that. I am the great I am, after all. I am your redeemer. I have atoned for your sins. And no matter what it costs me to cover you, remember that's the word in Hebrew for atone, you will be safe 
within my embrace. So come, hearken to my voice. Humble yourself. It can be a humbling thing to have to come in and seek shelter somewhere. I know, I can, I can face the elements. I can handle this on my own. Oh, believe me, you can't. Remember, that's section 19. You have no idea how, how exquisite and how sore and how hard to bear these kinds of things are. Please come unto me. Humble yourself and call upon me in mighty prayer. Now, this is where, it's, where there's an irony there. Because how did this verse begin? That part of it anyway? It, it was hearkening to the Lord's voice. How did the section begin? Listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. Wait, wait, so who's talking to who here? Well, who initiates the conversation? In this case, the Lord does. He's the one calling, clucking, come unto me. Now, in order for you to do that, that's going to take some humility to overcome your own obstinance, to set aside your stubbornness and just come. Well, where does us calling upon him in mighty prayer come in? I wonder if that's a matter of recognizing now that we're with him, what he's asking us to do Wow, okay, that's going to take some strength, some grace on our part as well. So please grant us that grace so that we can do what you are commanding. You see, flip it around and I think this will become more clear. Because if there's all kinds of dangers outside, if we reverse the process and it starts with us calling upon God in mighty prayer with our long to-do list, this is our 911 dispatch, right? And we're calling him frantically. You've got to save me here. And so you need to do this and that and the other to prepare me and to prepare everything else. Well, careful, because if we start that conversation and we're calling upon him in mighty prayer to give him the, the marching orders, then that suggests that we're asking God to humble himself because we want him to hearken to our voice. Do you sense the danger of reversing the order here? I'm telling you what to do, so humble yourself so, and listen to me. No, reverse it and the way the Lord sets it. No, no, no. You, know, you hearken to me and humble yourself to come. And then you can call upon me in mighty prayer to have the power, the faith, the strength to be able to do what I'm asking of you. Yes, that's going to require humility. That's why I asked for it. So important that we follow the Lord's order here instead of uh, our own. Now, verse 3, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, that at this time your sins are forgiven you. Wait, wait, wait. Why did you have to say at this time? If you left that out, it would have been much more reassuring. Oh, we're forgiven. No. Well, at this time you are. Therefore, you receive these things. That's why I'm giving you this. I'm speaking to a, a recently cleansed vessel. But remember to sin no more, lest perils shall come upon you. It's your repentance that's going to protect you from those perils. Falling back into sin just opens you back up to those kinds of, of obstacles. I love that even in that verse, verse 3, there's this balancing act here, this proving of contraries between, well, are you clean? Well, yes. Well, is that a permanent new condition? No. Remember section 20. Even the elect can fall from grace. But currently... Right now, okay, <laughs> you just partook of the sacrament again, for example. You've, you've renewed your covenants. You are clean. Your sins are forgiven. But that counts for this time. Be careful not to sin anymore because that just leads to additional problems. You see, back to this analogy of the professor giving you your homework assignment, that this idea of I have to start working on the paper right now because he could ask for it next week. Well, good, write it. 
But then even after it's written, don't just leave it in your backpack and, and ready to turn it in at any given time. Because if it hasn't been collected yet, then you still have time to keep editing, to keep rewriting. Because sadly, this is homework that the dog eats every night, which means we need to keep on working at it. Because there's something about not letting your first draft become your final draft that allows for continual progress. And that's what I'm hoping for. So, forgiven now, but don't sin tomorrow. Because you will have a tomorrow. So keep working on things. Verse 4, Verily I say unto you, that ye are chosen out of the world to declare my gospel with a sound of rejoicing, as with the voice of a trump. Trumps come up often. Trumpets are mentioned frequently in the book of Revelation. And in the letters of Paul, he talks about trumpets, making sure that they make a certain sound. That's the thing about the, this call to arms. It's the, it's the armies of Israel with their ram's horn, their shofar, trying to call the house of Israel to attention, right? Listen to the voice. Hearken, you house of Israel. Be up and get ready. And that voice needs to be a clarion call, crystal clear, so that we don't mistake it for anything else. And... It's not just loud and clear, this voice of a trump. It's joyful. This is trumpeting in a major key rather than a minor one. I think too often as we're, we're almost trying to scare people into preparation. And there's maybe some room for that. We will see it happen in section 29. Okay, It is a dreadful day in a way, but it's a great one in a way as well. And to emphasize that side, to declare the gospel with rejoicing, to show people how happy it makes us, so they can recognize the happiness it will bring to them. But in order to do that, we have to find a, an interesting balancing act of our own that revolves around that phrase, to be chosen out of the world. Now, we've, we've been raised on this idea of being in the world, but not of the world. So where does this chosen out of the world come in? Now, it might be a matter of, well, you're all in the world, but I'm choosing you and choosing you. These are my, the, the chosen people that I am deciding to then choose everyone else to choose to be chosen as well. This is my exclusivity that precedes my efforts at radical inclusivity. So I'm choosing you out of the world. But there's also this sense of I need you to come out of the world enough that you're different from the world. But also be in the world enough that you can make a difference within it. That's a, a tough balance. In fact, you can almost uh, chart churches across this spectrum of how much in the world versus not of the world they happen to be. Some churches decide, well, we, we need to get more and more like the world so that we can almost embed ourselves in the enemy camp. Because if we're in there, then we're surrounded by people that really need the difference that we can make. So great, we're going we're gonna to be as, as much like everyone else as possible and then change from within. Well, the, 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 there's good, the pros and cons to every step one, one takes in either direction. Because the further into the world you get, the more of a difference you can make within it. However, the less different from the world you are, so well, what kind of a difference are you left to make there? On the opposite extreme, it's, oh, I'm completely different from the world. Well, yeah, but you're not even in it enough for anyone to listen to you. There is some sweet spot somewhere in the middle that we're trying to reach. And that the Lord is, is inviting us to, that you need to be in it enough to make a difference, to contribute, but out of it enough that you actually have a difference to make. I'm choosing you. Go declare my gospel. 
along the same lines of this sound of rejoicing, verse 5 continues, lift up your hearts, be glad. See, it's not just what we're doing, it's how we're doing it. And so this rejoicing, this gladness of heart, now to approach the last days, and again, these days of trouble and gloom, with gladness and rejoicing, well, what's there to be glad about? Well, here's some examples. Keep going in verse 5. You can rejoice and be glad over the fact that I am in your midst. I'm here. I'm with you. It's someone in the, in the comments, I think back in section 1, pointed out something really powerful that I had totally missed. In that thesis statement of prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come, for the Lord is nigh, I always picture that as, again, second coming, I'm coming quickly. So prepare for that. But they also pointed out that nigh is not just near in terms of timing, but near like, I'm right next to you. I'm here. And you get that sense here. What's there to be glad about? My presence. That I'm part of this process of preparation. What else to be glad about? Next phrase. And am your advocate with the Father. Your advocate. I'm your lawyer for the defense. We'll actually get to hear his closing arguments when we get to section 45, another second coming section. But to recognize that, like I said before, none of us are going to make it through the last days unscathed, that we'll need a defense attorney. But the fact that the Lord is with us so he can empathize, he understands the, the conditions on the ground and recognizes what we're up against. So that being with us, he can then advocate for us and explain to the Father the mitigating circumstances of the period in which we live. Father, I'm here. I have condescended, come down to be with them. And I understand the power of temptation. I never succumb to it myself, but I do understand now the weakness of the flesh and why they would succumb. I am not asking for a denial of justice but I am willing to face justice myself so that I can extend to them and protect them under my arm of mercy. That is something to rejoice over. Those are glad tidings of great joy that must be to every people. Third thing to be glad about in verse 5, the fact that it is the Father's goodwill to give us the kingdom. Like I said before, he's not trying to flunk us out this is not a pop quiz in hopes of him cackling behind his office door going, ha ha, I failed them all. They weren't ready for that at all. No, that's why he's giving us signs of the times. He wants us to be ready. Yes, it still has to be a test, but it's a test he wants us to pass. It's his good will to give us the kingdom. That's why he's inviting us to help build it ourselves. Yes, we have cause to rejoice. And then in verse 6, one more thing to rejoice over. As it is written... Whatsoever ye shall ask in faith, being united in prayer according to my command, ye shall receive. And that's exactly what's happening with this gathering of less than a dozen saints. You've come together. You're united in prayer. You're asking in faith. You're living my commandments and want more commandments to live. So I'm giving them to you. I know what you're up against. I know what I'm asking. So come together in faith, in unity, in obedience, and you'll receive all the direction that you need. Do you get a sense of that from President Nelson lately? As he's trying to, to gather us and help us become truly one, strengthen our unity, build our faith, 
increase our obedience, and open ourselves to ongoing revelation. I know the days you live in. I know what you're called upon to do and be. I know it's a tall order. So ask. That goes back to verse 2. I'm calling you. You're hearkening to my voice. That's a good first step. Number two, will you humble yourself? That's part of this repentance and being forgiven, but, but not, not sinning anymore, of coming out of the world. And then the third part, call upon me in mighty prayer, because you've got work to do, and it's going to require all that's in you. In fact, more than that. It's going to require my enabling grace. So ask for it, and I promise you'll receive. Then in verse 7, he gets more, very specific as to what this, this responsibility entails. Ye are called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect. For mine elect hear my voice, and harden not their hearts. I mean, that's why you're underneath the chicken's wings already. Because you listened. You hearkened. You are here. But there's room under these arms of mercy for everyone. And so your job now, having been gathered yourself, is to gather everyone else. Having been chosen yourself, you need to go out and choose everyone else. And if their ears are open and their hearts are soft, there's that hear my voice and harden not their hearts, then they'll come running to. Verse 8, running where? Wherefore the decree hath gone forth from the Father, that they shall be gathered in unto one place upon the face of this land, they don't know where that is yet, but they will shortly. What are they supposed to do when they're there? To prepare their hearts and be prepared in all things against the day when tribulation and desolation are sent forth upon the wicked. So now we get our first hint of the not-so-rejoicing part of things. So far it's been great. Well, there's going to be some dreadful. But the tribulation and desolation are sent forth upon the wicked. I, and I'm trying to gather out the righteous from among the wicked. This is the wheat and the tares, okay? will gather the wheat from the midst of the tares and bring them from bondage, from sorrows and snares. Isn't that what we sing? That, that's why we're sending elders and sisters of Israel all around the world to do. Now here, this very beginning, remember there's only 10 people here, we're all going to gather into one place upon the face of this land. First, we'll see this shortly, they'll gather to Ohio. Then they'll see that the ultimate gathering place will be in, in Zion, Jackson County, Missouri, Independence. Uh, and that will be the central spot of Zion. So much of what we'll see later in the Doctrine and Covenants will revolve around that. Well, gathering places eventually come to Nauvoo and then to Salt Lake City. And now, amazingly, worldwide, wherever there is a stake of Zion, this is the tent analogy that Isaiah uses. If there's a stake in the ground, it's holding up the tent. So you're in the tent. You're part of it. And so these gathering places all around the world, as stakes are sunk into the soil, as a place of protection, this tent of Zion, well, those are the wings of the hen as well. So wherever you happen to be, you are part of this tent of Zion. You are being gathered in onto not just one place. It's now become one global place of gathering, wherever righteous saints happen to be. We'll see that definition expand and grow over time in the Doctrine and Covenants. But then this other phrase, to prepare their hearts and to be prepared in all things. Now, is that being redundant, to prepare and be prepared? Well, I wonder if there's a, an internal and an external or as we'll see a lot of in this section, a spiritual and a temporal. I need you to prepare your hearts spiritually, internally for these last days. But I also want you to be prepared in all things, the external, the temporal. 
Are you adding oil to your vessel? There's the internal, the spiritual. But also, are you laying up in store? Do you have food storage? Are you prepared to be able to make it through not just a rainy day, but some days of trouble and gloom? On both of those sides, like I said, at the, by the end of this section, we'll see a, a long and, and, and powerful explanation of the need for both the spiritual and the temporal. And that it's all spiritual to God, but there are temporal aspects of things too. So prepare your heart, do the spiritual, the internal, but prepare all things as well. Because, verse 9, the hour is nigh, the day is soon at hand, when the earth is ripe, and all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble, and I will burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that wickedness shall not be upon the earth. So here you get the urgency side of the spectrum. Hour is nigh, day is soon, the earth is ripe. Remember that, that rotting banana imagery that we saw earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants? Ready only to be stirred up to repentance and then baked as banana bread. This, the, the proud and wicked as stubble. This is the, the image that he brought up in, in Malachi chapter 4. Remember a, a section or a chapter that Moroni quotes to Joseph Smith in 1823. This idea of, of harvesting the field so that all that's left are the, the base of each stalk of grain. That's the stubble. And then what do you do to prepare the, the, the field for next year's planting? You burn it. This is all going according to plan. The hour is nigh, and that which was spoken by mine apostles must be fulfilled. For as they spoke, so shall it come to pass. Remember, the Lord always has his servants back. He always vindicates the prophets, whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. And so that the heavens and the earth shall pass away. In fact, in this chapter we'll see, and they will. I was talking literally there. An old gone so that a new will come. Though the heavens and the earth shall pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled. So bank on what prophets and apostles have taught. In verse 11, here's one of those teachings. I will reveal myself from heaven with power and great glory, with all the hosts thereof, and dwell in righteousness with men on earth a thousand years, and the wicked shall not stand. They're the ones that will succumb to the tribulation and desolation, because they're neither prepared spiritually nor have been prepared temporally for these events. Verse 11, in a single verse, here's the second coming and the millennial reign. There's the 10th article of faith. Verse 12, again, verily, verily, I say unto you, and it hath gone forth in a firm decree, by the will of the Father, that mine apostles, the twelve which were with me in my ministry at Jerusalem, shall stand at my right hand at the day of my coming in a pillar of fire, being clothed with robes of righteousness, with crowns upon their heads, in glory even as I am. And what's their responsibility? To judge the whole house of Israel, even as many as have loved me and kept my commandments, and none else. Now it's interesting that verse 12 is so much longer than verse 11. Where verse 11 covered a thousand years of history. Here's the second coming of the millennium. Well, let's get back to what you need to focus on. In some ways, it's like uh, 4th Nephi. The one chapter that describes a mini millennium among the Nephites. And that's all we get. One chapter. In fact, half a chapter. It's like the Lord's like, hey, I want you to get there. But when you get there, believe me, you'll have plenty to talk about how awesome it is. I want to talk about getting you there more than actually what it's like once you've arrived. So verse 12, let's talk about judgment, shall we? Because that's what you need to be preparing for. I want you to be among the righteous who rejoice, 
not among the wicked who lament. And so as I come, I'm also bringing with me the, the hosts of heaven. There's all the hosts thereof back from verse 11. But also these apostles of mine, the original 12. Now, Judas won't be a part of it. So we'll have, probably have Matthias instead to take his place. But to see those original 12 apostles in his ministry at Jerusalem, there at his right hand, how do they look? Robes of righteousness, crowns upon their heads, and glory just like Jesus. And they've come to judge. Now, this is where it gets interesting because what role do they play in all of this judgment? And how does this compare to what we see in 2 Nephi chapter 9, for example, where he says that the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. So how do we balance him, this shared almost delegated responsibility of judgment with this, this solitary figure of, I'm the one and the keeper of the gate. No, no, no delegation there. Well, here in verse 12, notice he's being much more specific. Who's actually going to judge? Well, the original 12 apostles. In the Book of Mormon, by the way, we see that the 12 Nephite disciples will judge that particular portion of the house of Israel. It's almost like you'll get judged by your particular leaders the ones that understand your situation best. They're, again, a condescension in judgment here, like we saw on, on the level of Jesus Christ himself. But notice, they will judge the house of Israel, but more specifically, those who have loved the Lord and kept his commandments, and none else. It's like, oh, so they're going to be judging the righteous. It's almost like the Lord's going, hey, um, Peter, James, and John, all, all the rest of you 12, I'm going to give you the easy ones, Okay. Uh, you get to give the good news. It's almost like when, when a bunch of people apply for a position or a scholarship or, or a college, and, and it's like, well, we have to send out the good news and the bad news. Uh, which one do you want to take care of? Oh, dibs on the good one. I'll, I'll make all the happy phone calls. And that's what these apostles get to do. If you have loved the Lord and kept his commandments, then to be able to rejoice with these apostles who did likewise, who also loved the Lord and kept his commandments, I honestly wonder if, it, if that's part of it, this reassurance, like, you were a disciple of his as well. And, and what you're seeing in me is what you'll see in yourself. Robes of righteousness, crowns upon your head, in glory, like Jesus. I, I, I just, I get, again, I get this sense of, the, of Peter, of a Matthew, of a doubting Thomas even, to say, I know it sounds too good to be true. Believe me, I'm an expert in, in not believing things that sound too good to be true. But look at me, even me, with robes of righteousness and a crown of light. Glory, his glory reflecting, this will be you too. Now take it back to that verse in 2 Nephi 9. And I've heard this taught, and I, and I love this idea, that we often think of Jesus being there as the ultimate quality control. It's like, no, no, none shall pass. You may have tricked the others, but you're not going to trick me. As opposed to what it more likely is, that only he will be sufficiently convincing that we actually are being welcomed into the celestial kingdom. I think, again, I think in many of us, there's this gut sense of inadequacy and I'll never be good enough. Well, let's have apostles who are on your mortal level also let you know, no, it's okay. We know how hard it is. Thomas doubted. Peter denied. I mean, we had issues too. But the Lord has robed us in his righteousness. He has crowned us with his glory. 
He's doing the same for you. Now, that might be reassuring to a degree. But even that, will we, no, go ahead, move forward. there's There's the entrance. Go right ahead. Just pass through the gate. And I wonder if we kind of tiptoe closer to it, but the closer we get, the slower we go because it's, I don't know. Were they just being overly nice because they need a lower bar just like I do? I don't know. It's like talking to your bishop and him reassuring you that it's clean. you're clean. It's okay. You can go partake of the sacrament again. And being grateful for that, but still kind of thinking, yeah, but he's not perfect and he's not all-knowing. And yeah, maybe he, he's being nice to me, but the Lord definitely won't be. At, perhaps at that point is when the keeper of the gate is him and him alone. No other servant. You got this far on the reassurance and preliminary judgment of mine apostles. They were right. I back them up. I make sure things go just as they said that they would. Come in. You're not fooling anyone. You didn't fool them. You certainly can't fool me. But my arms of mercy have atoned for your sins. So welcome. And then in verse 13... Calling everyone's attention again. Another trump. For a trump shall sound both long and loud, even as upon Mount Sinai. And all the earth shall quake, and they shall come forth, yea, even the dead which died in me, to receive a crown of righteousness and to be clothed upon, even as I am, to be with me, that we may be one. What do you think the at-one-ment was for? The atonement is to make us one. Now, here, this trumpet sound, verse 13, is one verse about the resurrection. And it's the resurrection of the just. If we have the coming of Christ in 11, and this preliminary judgment in 12, well, 13 is the resurrection of the righteous, those who died in me, to receive that crown of righteousness that they got to see on the the heads of the apostles. Again, this is preview of coming attractions. You look just like us, and we look just like him. No wonder the earth is quaking. It is opening the graves as the righteous are coming forth. And I love the end, by the way, where it says they will be clothed upon, even as I am. Now, again, clothing, covering, is always a symbol of atonement. You're no longer naked. You're not exposed to the all-seeing eye of God or to the demands of justice. You've been covered. But there's also some imagery here of clothing, meaning the, the mortal body. It's our body, our flesh, that clothes our spirit. And when we die, our spirit and body separate so that our spirit can return to God for judgment and ultimately for resurrection. Even as our clothing is laid in the earth, only later to be brought back in glorious newness. Believe me, serious clothing upgrade from what we left behind to being clothed upon with glory. Even as the Lord, he he had a resurrected body. As he says to his apostles, come handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see me have. In fact, there's a a fascinating verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul talks about the resurrection and also uses clothing as his metaphor. He says, for we that are in this tabernacle, and that's a good imagery for the mortal body too, a tabernacle of clay, as King Benjamin calls it, We who are in this tabernacle do groan, 
being burdened. There's so much about the mortal body that can be burdensome, that can cause us to groan. The older we get, the more we groan, believe me. But then he said this, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up in life. You see, unfortunately, over time, this idea of a body being a gift became more the sense of the body as a curse. It was the sense of the body is evil and only the spirit is good. And what a, a welcome day it will be to escape the body and leave it behind forever. It's one of the reasons that the creeds speak of a God without body, parts, or passions, because those are all seen as negative things. And yet what's Paul saying as he's describing the, uh, the resurrection? No, no, no. We're not trying to be disrobed permanently. Not that we would be unclothed, is how he says it. Rather, clothed upon. We want more clothing, or in this case, better clothing. The kind that never wears out. For any of you who are struggling and groaning under a burden of a mortal body that you would probably prefer to exchange for something better, rest assured that someday you will. Try, even against the odds, to appreciate the body that you've been given. To have one at all is a glorious gift. It's part of our Father's plan. It's part of how we become more like Him, to be clothed, later to be clothed upon with even greater glory in a resurrected body. So let's do our best not to groan too much. Let's be grateful in the present and look forward in anticipation to the future. Verse 14, he then says, but behold. So a good times ahead, but we have some stuff we have to get through first. But behold, I say unto you, that before this great day shall come, so now we're going to get into the signs of the times. I love that he's kind of pushing the end, and then we have to backtrack a little bit. I want you to see what this is all about. I want you to see second coming, and millennium, and, and judgment, and resurrection. Good times ahead. Now there's some stuff that we have to get through to get there, though. So now let's rewind the clock a little bit, now that you know the, the good news, and see what's coming on its way. Before this great day shall come, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall be turned into blood, the stars shall fall from heaven, and there shall be greater signs in heaven above and in the earth beneath. Now, every time you see the Lord speak about signs of the times, in fact, frequently in Scripture, you have to ask yourself the question, is this literal or figurative? And often the answer is, yes. <laughs> There's an element of both here. Now, there, there can be problems when we assume it's only literal. If you think about what Jesus says to Nicodemus, for example, that you have to be born again. And Nicodemus takes it literally. And he's like, oh, my mom's not going to like that. And you can picture Jesus face palming, going, are you serious, Nicodemus? Spiritually speaking, figuratively, born of water and of the Spirit. Man, you're a teacher in Israel? You don't get this? It's all right. Next chapter, the woman at the well. Wait a minute, living water? Never thirst again? That would save me a ton of works and work and chore time. Give me some of that. And Jesus, no, I'm, that's not the kind of water I'm talking about. Well, it's not just Nicodemus and the woman at the well. The disciples themselves, when they come back at, to the well and, and say, oh, wait, Jesus, we brought food. And he says, oh, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And they're like, huh? Did he, did he get takeout? What, what, what do you mean you've eaten already? No, my meat is to do the will of my father who sent me. I, I'm speaking symbolically here, right? No wonder they didn't understand parables very well. They took everything way too literally. When he says to them, hey, we got to go back to Jerusalem because Lazarus, our friend, he, he sleepeth and we need to wake him up. 
And they're like, well, if he's just asleep, he'll wake up on his own. Why put yourself into that danger? And it's like, guys, sleep, dead, you see, never mind. We got to go, let's go raise him. You understand, we get into trouble sometimes when we literalize everything. Here, when it says the moon shall be turned into blood, please don't take that literally. It's not going to be some massive blood clot orbiting the earth. But also, don't swing the pendulum so far that we figurativize, is that even a word? Everything. We don't want to make the second coming of Jesus Christ just a metaphor for something. That's, that's taking things too far on that extreme. But here, if we think symbolically, again, allow for the literal, a darkened day, for example, but also allow for the symbolic. If the sun is darkened, Elsewhere, it says the sun shall refuse to give its light. That's even more of an interesting metaphor, where it says if the sun, which allows us to see all that's around us, is so horrified by the wickedness that it is allowing us to see, it's like, nope. It's like a parent wanting to close the eyes of a child because of whatever. No, I don't want you to look at that. That will be too traumatic for you. The sun itself refuses to shine a light on such evil. These people who, who refuse light, and rejoice in darkness, fine. I'll let you see what that really feels like. Believe me, you will be pleading for light when the sun itself seems to go dark. The moon, the moon is so often described as this, well, clear as the sun, fair as the moon, this softness of moonlight. And yet the moon, softness and gentleness, turning to blood, violence and anger, or the stars falling from heaven. Remember that stars are, are where you, it's not just light that it gives, but it gives direction. You constellations and see where's the north star and where should I be hitting, heading. This is how I navigate. And to have no points of reference, no fixed standards to follow. Doesn't that describe the last days? Or even stars, the mighty, the lofty, falling. Verse 15, there shall be weeping and wailing among the hosts of men. How could there not be in such darkness and gloom? No direction to follow. This Again, doesn't it sound like 3 Nephi 8 and 9 and 10? The destruction that precedes the coming of Christ among the Nephites? If only we had repented before these days of destruction had come, then we would have been spared. Verse 16, there shall be a great hailstorm sent forth to destroy the crops of the earth. No wonder we needed to be prepared in all things temporally, if we can't count on, on other sources of temporal assistance. This idea of hailstorms also should start making us think about the plagues of Egypt. And what was that for? To free the slaves so that they could get to their promised land, so they could gather to the place promised them. So here's these hailstorm, this hailstorm. Verse 17, it shall come to pass because of the wickedness of the world that I will take vengeance upon the wicked for they will not repent. For the cup of mine indignation is full. For behold, my blood shall not cleanse them if they hear me not. It's in a verse like that that you sense the Lord in almost every other place where he talks about the hen gathering her chickens. He then laments, but ye would not. We'll see that clearly when we get to section 43 in a few weeks. Here, the same idea of, but ye would not, you wouldn't hear me or humble yourself or call upon me in mighty prayer. You wouldn't come. And if you won't repent, then I cannot cleanse you. That was section 19. 
repent or you must suffer even as I suffered. Now do we see this cup of mine indignation compared to what Jesus drank? The bitter cup to the dregs. Someone's going to have to drink it. I already drank it for you. Don't pour yourself another cup. Repent and I will cleanse you. If you don't accept this baptism of fire, then instead of a cleansing fire, yours will be a destroying one. If you don't allow me to partake of the bitter cup for you, then you'll be drinking a bitter cup yourself. That's what the atonement, the condescension was for. I'm trying to replay, to switch places with you. Please allow me to. In verse 18, back to the, the scary news, the, these plagues of Egypt. We saw it first hinted in 16, this hailstorm. Actually, in 14, with the darkened sun, we, saw, we see that in the plagues of Egypt too. But then in 18, this is where I wouldn't want to turn this into a bedtime story. Wherefore, I, the Lord God, will send forth flies upon the face of the earth, which shall take hold of the inhabitants thereof, and shall eat their flesh, and shall cause maggots to come in upon them. This is not a pleasant scene, but we see those, these flies that come after the frogs in Egypt too. Verse 19, their tongues shall be stayed that they shall not utter against me, and their flesh shall fall from off their bones and their eyes from their sockets. It shall come to pass that the beasts of the forest and the fowls of the air shall devour them up. Now again, literal or figurative? Most likely both. Some want to take this solely, literally, and say, oh, that must be some kind of nuclear holocaust. And, and eyes falling and flesh from the bone and perhaps it's crazy to think that we have gotten to a point where the, the horrors of the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, are now things that we could honestly begin to see as being man-made. Throughout most of human history, it's been, oh, only God can cause that kind of destruction. But scary now that we live in a world of mutually assured destruction, which has the most appropriate acronym, that is madness to be able to go down that path. But to think that we could pull off the book of Revelation ourselves, that we've gotten to a point where these things could literally be unleashed upon one another, no wonder we need to cry repentance to the world and peace on earth and goodwill toward men to avoid these kinds of things. But add to that literal possibility a figurative symbolic dimension. And there seems to be, again, this, well, if you didn't do this, then of course this has to happen. There's this poetic justice, this balancing of the scales. You wouldn't let me drink the bitter cup. You have to drink it yourself. You wouldn't be cleansed by my blood. You'll now have to be cleansed by my fire. So in verse 19, your tongue shall be stayed. It can't utter against me. Why? Because you wouldn't choose to utter your testimony instead. The, the tongue, right? Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is the Christ. Well, if you wouldn't choose to do so, well, now your tongue will be stayed so it can't utter against me. The flesh from the bone, again, metaphorically, think about what one part of our problem one of the reasons we don't humble ourselves and call upon God in mighty prayer is because we trust instead in the arm of flesh. Well, imagine if we got to a point where there's no more flesh on your arm to place your trust in, where you realize just how hollow our human promises are if they're not tapping into the power of God. There will come a day where it is painfully clear 
that we are insufficient to be able to do all of these things ourselves, that we have to exercise faith in God. Or eyes falling from the socket, again, think metaphorically. You refused to see. That's why I turned off the sun. You weren't using light anyway. You certainly weren't open to the light of the world. And with no light, there's no reason for an eye. If you rejoice in darkness, if you choose darkness rather than light, then what was the point of an eye anyway? You have become willfully blind. You have rejected the light of the world. You have closed the eyes of seers, told them, don't prophesy to me. This is from the Old Testament, this same kind of imagery. Then what point is your eye if you won't allow them to use theirs? In 20, that idea of the beasts of the forest, the fowls of the air coming to devour. There's an interesting chapter in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, describes two feasts going on. One you want to be invited to, the other one you want to avoid. The first is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what the ten virgins were preparing for. That's the parable of the marriage of the king's son. That's the one we want to come to. But by the end of that chapter, it describes a different feast for those that refused to come to the first one. And refused was on them because everyone's invited. That second one is called the Supper of the Great God. And guess who comes to feed in that one? It's the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air. And they, they, these, are, these are birds of carrion. These are vultures. These are hyenas. These are scavengers. And, and let your mind follow that path to understand what they're feasting upon. You see, it's either eat or be eaten. It's either serve or be served, depending on which dinner you attend. It's a powerful juxtaposition there in Revelation 19. Choice is yours. Then in verse 21, he says, And the great and abominable church, which is the whore of all the earth, shall be cast down by devouring fire, according as it is spoken by the mouth of Ezekiel the prophet, who spoke of these things, which have not come to pass, but surely must, as I live, for abominations shall not reign. God refuses to allow things to go according to Satan's plan. I will win this war. Abominations shall not reign. Eventually, I will step in and say, no, this, this ends now. In fact, even there, there's this balance when it comes to the second coming. Uh, again, forgive the, the divinity school lingo, but there's, a, there's an approach called premillennialism and an approach called postmillennialism. And, and the pre and the post just mean, well, when's Jesus going to come in relation to the millennium? Premillennialists say that Jesus comes before the millennium to, to usher it in. And postmillennialists say Jesus comes at the end of the millennium to accept it, kind of the cherry on top. Thank you for pulling off peace on earth. Postmillennialism is much more optimistic. We're going to be able to do this on our own. And then, like, once we've cleaned up the house, now Jesus can come. See what we did? We prepared the earth for you. Premillennialists are more pessimistic, or we could say more realist, uh, to say, we can't do this. There's no way we're going to clean the house. We have to have him come. He has to intercede and say, no, the, the, the party's over and sin must subside. This has gotten out of hand. And I'm going to take responsibility for this and say, no, abominations shall not reign. It's actually interesting that as Latter-day Saints, chronologically, we are premillennialists. But there is this interesting proving of contraries even there 
that Zion is something that the Lord sends, that's premillennialism. But it's also something that we build. And there's a hint of postmillennialism there. Again, not in, chron not in chronology, but in terms of optimism. What should we be doing? And personal responsibility. We've got to do it. Roll up our sleeves and let's work. We don't expect God to do it all on his own, but he doesn't expect us to do it all on ours either. And the sense of the great and abominable church, the whore of all the earth. Again, reread the book of Revelation. And you see this whore. You see the, the mother of harlots. Such a powerful image there. And here tied into this great and abominable church. We've talked about that. That's not a specific earthly organization. It's certainly not a, a denomination you would name. It's just anyone that fights against Zion. It's the sheep and the goats. It's, it's the wheat and the tares. And the day will come when the field is harvested, it's stubble, it's now burned, the great and abominable church, anyone that was off the target, pulling away from God and pulling people away from him too, that is going to be cast down in devouring fire. That's the, what Ezekiel taught. This is the battle of Gog and Magog, which Ezekiel explains in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Or a parallel would be to the battle of Armageddon. This is what's happening here. It's God's refusal to allow abomination to reign. Unless those days are shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. Eventually, I do unplug the scoreboard to make sure that we win this contest. In fact, there's a parallel here between Armageddon and Gog and Magog. I mean, specifically, if we want to get technical, we typically separate those as a battle at the beginning of the millennium, or right before the millennium, and a battle right at the end. You get that hint in verse 22. Again, verily, verily, I say unto you, that when the thousand years are ended, so now we're at the end of the millennium, and men again begin to deny their God, then will I spare the earth, but for a little season. And that's when you get then this final battle of Gog and Magog and the end of everything. See, there, there's parallels. It's the bookends of the millennium are the, these battles. Some have wondered, by the way, what this little season that he says in verse 22 Elsewhere in scripture, it talks about the adversary, Satan, being he's been trapped in this bottomless pit for the thousand years, but then he is loosed for a little season. That's why he says in verse 22, men again begin to deny their God. Now, some have wondered, I've wondered it too, why on earth would you let him out if you had him trapped? This little season, what's the point of that? And there seem to be two main explanations for this. One is, well, these children that have grown up without sin unto salvation for this thousand years, to finally have one last test. Here's one last opportunity. The choice truly is yours. I know you've been choosing wisely all this time, but it hasn't been against many odds. Well, now that the odds have been raised, are you still willing to choose me? One final test. Also, though, if there is a resurrection of the just at the beginning of, of the millennium, which we saw back in verse 13, there is also a resurrection of the unjust, which we'll see in just a moment. That comes at the end of the millennium. Well, if the unjust have been resurrected, ultimately to go the way of the telestial kingdom, does that give the adversary power again? If much of his power is simply, will people listen to him? And if the, again, the premillennialist would say, Satan is bound, why? Because the Lord says, you're done. You go sit in the corner and think about what you did. But the post-millennialists in us would say, well, why, did, why is he bound? Well, because nobody listens to him anymore. 
And if you read the end of 1 Nephi, you see that awesome balance of both the, the pessimism and the optimism. Both the, both the, it's the Lord that binds Satan and it's us that binds Satan. Well, in a similar vein, on the, on the end, the tail end, this loosing for a little season, is it partly because of the Lord allowing that to happen? Yes. And is it partly because of us, humanity, giving our ear a little bit more to the adversary with the resurrection of the unjust? That there's part, seems to be part of that too. But then once that's all over and the little season is done, remember the Book of Mormon is our, our scale model of all of this. We had Armageddon, so to speak, in those final battles or destruction of the wicked in 3 Nephi 8, 9, 10. Jesus comes in 11 and there's this mortal ministry. There's this mini millennium in 4th Nephi. But what happens at the end? Well, one last round of battles and the end of the book. So the, the, if Armageddon is 3 Nephi 8, 9, 10, then Gog and Magog is the parallel to the Book of Mormon and Moroni. The little season. But one last round of destruction, and then the book comes to an end. Verse 23, well, now we've reached the end of the book. The end shall come, and the heaven and the earth shall be consumed and pass away, but not just to go off into oblivion, to make room for its renewal. There shall be a new heaven and a new earth. Remember that ending of the 10th article of faith. The earth shall be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. The earth becomes the celestial kingdom. Verse 24, all things shall pass away. Though the heavens and earth shall pass away, my word shall not pass away, right? All things shall pass away, and all things shall become new. Even the heaven and the earth, and all the fullness thereof, both men and beasts, the fowls of the air, the fishes of the sea, not one hair, neither mote shall be lost, for it is the workmanship of mine hand. I love verse 24 and 25. Remember that promise we see it in Revelation, we see it in elsewhere. All things new. Think back to section 22. Why do I have to get rebaptized? Oh, everything has to get renewed somehow. Part of the purpose of the restoration of the gospel was to do away with dead works and to grant everything a newness of life. So the earth and heaven itself, everything old passes away. But again, I love this idea of it doesn't pass away into non-existence. It, it is renewed and made something different. Verse 25, in some ways, is the spiritual equivalent of the law of conservation of mass. If you think about to your science classes and think, well, mass can never be created nor destroyed. It simply changes its form. Well, that's not just good science. That's good doctrine. We'll see it taught clearly later on in the Doctrine and Covenants. But as Latter-day Saints, we're one of the few religions out there that does not believe in what uh, in Latin is called creation ex nihilo. Ex out of nihilo, nothing. Most people believe that when God said, let there be light and, and created the earth, that there was nothing there before. It went from non-existence into existence. There's this idea behind it is, well, that really proves the power of God. He is the unmoved mover. He is the uncaused causer of all things. Well, we don't believe in creation ex nihilo, and neither does God. You see, if you really want to show power, show what you can do by taking something that already exists and then transforming it into something even better. I've thought about this in terms of even like a building construction, which is harder to do, to start from scratch and build something according to your plan or take something that already exists and think, 
how am I going to change this? What adjustments? Ooh, I could do this, and that's still a load-bearing wall. Okay, we can do this, and, and, and a, to, to remodel a fixer-upper, that's, inc- that's impressive. That takes a skill set that in some ways goes beyond just a, an empty lot that you can do whatever you want with. It's one thing to build furniture. Another thing to refurbish something that's old. And the beauty of like refurbished furniture is that you take something that, that I mean, they're craftsmen. That, that, that There was effort that went into that. And to breathe new life into something old, there, there's, that's what antiques are all about, right? It's, there's something powerful about that. It, it, an afterlife of this same object. And so in verse 25, when he says, not a single hair, not a single moat, not a sliver will be wasted of my workmanship. Do you have any idea how much love and care went into creation? And I don't want a single sliver to go to waste. And so I want to renew it all. By the way, God doesn't believe in creation ex nihilo with you or me either. He doesn't look at us and say, oh, you ruin things. I'm just going to start over. I'm going to start from scratch. No. He says, do you have any matter you can give me? This is where I love the verse in Isaiah where he says that the Lord can take beauty for ashes. It's like, Lord, I don't have anything good, no good material to give you. My life has come, gone up in smoke. It's been reduced to ashes. And he's like, oh, wait, wait, did, did you say ash? Ash is one of my favorite mediums to use. Believe me, you, you should see what I can do with ash. The same wonderful student of, seminary student of mine who painted that beautiful picture of David and Goliath that I showed you last time or the time before. He also, he, he's so good that he was like, you know, Paint, it's too easy. Let me try stained glass. Well, that was easy too. Let me try that. You named the medium. He, 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 he mastered it. And so I remember in high school once, he created a sculpture of a human head and he made it out of crackers. I remember going, wait, you did what? Like, yeah, I'd never used crackers as a medium before. So you kind of mash it up, you know, and then use that as your sculpt. I think he used like those veggie straws as the hair. Uh, amazing. And, and it looked realistic. Incredible talent. And I just picture the Lord as an artist extraordinaire saying, you know, what have I not used yet as a medium? I, I just need material. And you've got ash? Let's see what I can do and make something beautiful out of it. Not to waste a single experience of yours. In fact, not even a single sin. If we'll just hand it over to him. Is there something you can do with this? And not a hair, not a moat will be lost. It all originated in his own magnificent workmanship. You thought refurbished furniture was cool. Well, imagine a renewed paradisical planet. I'm so grateful for all those who, with an eye to environmentalism, are trying to clean up Mother Earth. She's grateful for it too. Go reread the visions of Enoch in the book of Moses. But to see the ultimate renewal that will come when the Lord comes and makes all things new. Now, verse 26, he starts a new thought. But behold, so things sound so good in verse 24 and 25. But I do have, so he's balancing back and forth, bumper bowling, right, between the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. It's going to be both. Well, 26, but behold, verily I say unto you, before the earth shall pass away, 
He keeps doing this. Let me show you something awesome. And then let me just rewind just a little bit to let you know what we have to get through on the way. Okay, but we can do this. My arm of mercy is extended. But before that happens, before the earth shall pass away, Michael, mine archangel, shall sound his trump. Lots of trumpets, I told you. And then shall all the dead awake, for their graves shall be opened, and they shall come forth, yea, even all. Now, is he being redundant? I thought we already studied the resurrection. Well, no, back in verse 13, that was the resurrection of the just, those that died in me, that received their crown of righteousness and are clothed upon. That happens at the beginning of the millennium. Well, at the end of the millennium, now you see the resurrection of everyone else, the resurrection of the unjust. Michael, the archangel, sounds his trump. We see trumps in both verses. And that all the dead awake, all come forth, yea, even all, including those that will give Satan a second chance to, to be listened to. Verse 27, now the Lord will divide them. We saw a preliminary judgment of only the righteous uh, back in verse 12 with the original apostles. Now the ultimate judgment, verse 27, the righteous shall be gathered on my right hand unto eternal life. There's his right hand, his covenant hand. They kept my covenant. And the wicked on my left hand will I be ashamed to own before the Father. Now that sounds harsh too, but instead there is simply this poetic justice that keeps being brought up here. You wouldn't let me partake of the bitter cup, you have to yourself. You wouldn't loose your tongue in confessing me, then your tongue must be bound. You wouldn't reduce your trust in the arm of flesh, then that flesh has to be removed. Here, you were ashamed to own me, and so I am forced to be ashamed to own you. I can't claim you because you wouldn't claim me. That's what the Lord says in the book of Luke. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's. To me, it's part of the beauty of both the original and the Joseph Smith translation of those verses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. That's, that's the King James. In the Joseph Smith translation, it's, you never knew me. Well, which one's right? Again, I'd say in some ways, both. There is a sense of, because you wouldn't know me, then I can't claim to know you. That sense of shame or embarrassment has to go both ways, even though it breaks the Savior's heart. Verse 28, he provides one version. It's up to us to provide what could have been the alternative. Wherefore, I will say unto them, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. What could it have been? Reverse every phrase, and what could it be? Not depart from me, ye cursed, but come unto me, ye blessed. Not into everlasting fire, but into everlasting joy and rejoicing. Not that which was prepared for the devil and his angels, but that which was prepared for the Lord and his saints. The choice is completely up to us. The best explanation I've ever heard of Joseph's statement that the book of Revelation is super easy to understand, which again frustrates most people. They're like, wait, Joseph said what? Yeah, Joseph said it was the plainest book of scripture. And you're like, well, easy for you to say. You were a prophet and, and you knew John the Beloved. He came and hung out with you on several occasions. Man, what do you mean it's simple? One of my favorite books to help us understand the book of Revelation is one called, Who Shall Be Able to Stand? by Mike Wilcox. 
Full disclosure, he's my uncle, so I know I'm biased. But I still think it's one of the best books ever written to explain the book of Revelation. And I love what Mike says about that statement from Joseph Smith. He's not trying to rub it in like, ha, easy for me, hard for you. He's, no, I don't think it was the symbolism that Joseph meant by plain. So what was it then? And here I love Uncle Mike's insight. It was the decision it presents. The decision between good and evil, light and darkness. That's why the book of Revelation almost always puts side by side the choices before you. Right? Same chapter. Chapter 19. Which dinner would you like to attend? Eat or be eaten? Wow, that's a very plain choice. Uh Uh-huh. Choose wisely. The choice is now obvious. It's as plain as can be. And so take a verse like 28 and, and present the two possibilities it's not a difficult decision at all. It can be difficult to, to follow through with the decision that we make. It's an uphill climb. But making the decision itself should be straightforward. I want to be on the Lord's side of the line. Now, verse 29 and 30, he does something interesting here. Again, in the context of Judgment Day, he then says, Now behold, I say unto you, never at any time have I declared from mine own mouth that they should return. For where I am, they cannot come, for they have no power. It requires power to live in the presence of God. Again, as Brad Wilcox, no relation, but I love him, uh, said, heaven is not something that we earn. It's something that we learn. It's something we prepare ourselves for. Have you gained the power of righteousness to the point that you can stand in the presence of righteousness personified? You can't come if you lack that power. And so, so much of life is trying to empower you to be able to dwell in God's presence. But what he's saying in 29 is, I never said that they'll be able to come. I didn't open the door to that kind of universalism that Joseph Knight Sr. had fallen into. Remember, we're trying to balance justice and mercy here. So verse 29 reminds us of God's justice. But then verse 30, he eases back it just a little bit, which opens the door to some interesting insight. Verse 30, but remember... So after I've given you this stark statement in 29, but remember that all my judgments are not given unto men. Wait, wait, so, huh? He is opening the door there. 29, justice. I never said you'd be able to come out of that. That judge, final judgment is passed and it's passed. It's been, it's been declared and there's no change. You're in that kingdom and it's eternal. Verse 30, but remember, I don't tell you everything about my own judgment. In some ways, this goes back to what we studied in section 19. Oh, you mean endless torment and eternal damnation? Yeah, that's not exactly what I meant by that. I I knew you'd take it that way. I wanted it to work on your heart, after all. You needed to be pushed in the direction of repentance. some, Some of you need a stick. But the carrot is also out there. That I was talking about degree, not duration. There's still hope. I wonder if he's doing something similar with verse 29 and 30. Now, I I can't definitively say, nope, it's the justice of 29. Or definitively say, nope, it's the mercy of 30. And I'm grateful that the Lord doesn't make it definitive because the ambiguity allows the the spectrum to exist whereon we can move in either direction depending on how where we happen to be in the moment. If you're feeling complacent and lazy, then stick with verse 29 and let's get going. If you're feeling hopeless because of past mistakes, for you or for someone you love, leave yourself some room in verse 30 to hold out hope. At the end of the day, in the absence of of definitive clarity, I guess we're left with faith, which isn't a bad place to be.
trust God that his justice and mercy will perfectly balance in such a way to make it possible for everyone to come home. That is his ultimate goal. As he says in the rest of verse 30, As the words have gone forth out of my mouth, even so shall they be fulfilled, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first in all things, whatsoever I have created by the word of my power, which is the power of my spirit. I mean, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us either, right? Well, how does that work? First, last, last, first? What's the order? How does this work? Just trust me that I know what I'm doing. The words that have gone out of my mouth will be fulfilled. In fact, I am the word of God. And my work and my glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So just trust that I'll be able to pull it off if you'll simply submit to that will. If you'll live into my power, which is my spirit. Now, speaking of that, and he's going to do this several times in the rest of this revelation, where it says, oh, while I'm on this topic, can I, can I introduce another thought to you? So while I'm on the subject of creating by the power of my spirit, end of verse 30, let me talk about that for a second here in verse 31. For by the power of my spirit created I them, yea, all things, both spiritual and temporal. Remember, we caught that hint earlier in this revelation. You need to prepare your heart, there's the spiritual, and be prepared in all things, there's the temporal. Well, let's talk about both halves of the whole, the spiritual and the temporal. There's, there's a contrary to be proven there as well. Verse 32, first, spiritually. He's talking about his creation. I created things spiritually first. Secondly, temporal, which is the beginning of my work. And again, first, temporal, and secondly, spiritual, which is the last of my work. Now, that might confuse us, but think about creation, especially like the Book of Abraham account, where it was this pre-mortal plan where God decided, ooh, let's do this, and then we'll do that on the second day, and then the third, and then this is how we're going to organize things, and my noble and great, and they'll be my rulers, and, and this is going to be perfect. Or even the Garden of Eden, where it was, there was, here's this spiritual life that they're living, an innocent Eden, but there will be a fall, and it will introduce them into a mortal experience. The temporal will start taking pride of place, and they're going to have to fight against that. You see, if, if he starts it spiritually and then creates it temporally, and then we go through mortality, and what's the ultimate hope? As he makes all things new, we go from a temporal to a spiritual again. This is being born again, having his image in our countenance. We take our fallen flesh and renew it through the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's this beautiful role reversal, poetic justice as it comes full circle. Now, verse 33, he says, Now I'm speaking unto you that you may naturally understand. But unto myself, my works have no end, neither beginning. But it is given unto you that you may understand, because you have asked it of me and are agreed. Again, if two or three are gathered, here you got ten. You wanted to know these things, I'm trying to explain it to you. In fact, part of their question was about second coming. When will we see eye to eye? Where are we supposed to gather? How do we do this? But they also had a question about Adam. And, and was his fall physical? Was it spiritual? How does this all work? Well, now the Lord is beginning to answer that question too. And he's doing it in such a way that you can understand. But, but believe me, if I explained it in, in the way I understand it, you would be hopelessly lost. So let me talk about beginnings and endings and firsts and lasts, because you guys live chronologically. I get that. I, I see things a little, I'm more of circular. All things are more, one eternal round. There's no beginning, there's no end. Everything is in the, in the permanent eternal now. And we're like, well, huh? 
Oh, sorry, sorry, I was just thinking, of my, thinking out loud. Let me speak to you in a way that you will actually understand. Let's get back to beginnings and endings. But to couple what I'm trying to explain to you, to how I'm seeing it myself, verse 34, verily I say unto you, that all things unto me are spiritual. Not at any time have I given unto you a law which was temporal, neither any man nor the children of men, neither Adam, your father, whom I created. See, even when you do this dichotomy between the spiritual and the temporal, to me, it's all under the larger umbrella of the spiritual. It's all eternal to me. It's all my work and my glory. So it's okay to subdivide in your own mind so that you can strike the proper balance. But at the end of the day, everything's spiritual to me. That's good to keep in mind, especially if you are ever given something by way of a calling or a responsibility or an assignment that seems temporal. If you're in charge of temporal affairs, it's still spiritual. If your calling is, is to clean the building, see the spiritual aspect of your temporal work. So often it's, it's all the same thing for him. Even in ancient Israel, the, the sacrifices that they would make sounds all spiritual, right? I mean, I'm, I'm giving up an animal and just burning it on an altar. I mean, that doesn't do anything for temporally. It's a waste temporally. Well, not if you're a priest. Since if you're the priest, you, you don't have farm land to tend. You have priestly responsibilities every day. Well, how are you going to eat? Oh, no wonder there is both, both meat offerings and grain offerings and fruit offerings and, and, and drink offerings. Ah, spiritually, I'm making a sacrifice for the Lord. But temporally, this is actually putting food on the, on the priesthood's table. Oh, interesting. Now, the danger comes, like you see in the, in the book of Samuel, when Samuel's sons get rid of the spiritual side of that, and they're all in it for the temporal. It's all they care about. So they're taking the best portions, and this is, this is all about feed the priest day. No, it was never meant to be. It was meant to include that, but it was never meant to become that. Everything is spiritual for God. But again, if we take Samuel's sons as our, as our bad example, beware of ever looking at anything through a purely temporal lens. No matter what your calling or responsibility or role in the world might be, do it infuse it with the power of God. Consecrate your efforts to him. And believe me, if he can make beauty from ashes, he can bring something spiritual out of any temporal thing that you're engaged in. Now, verse 35, Behold, I gave unto him, Adam, that he should be an agent unto himself. Let's talk about the fall for a minute and how that all, that all comes about. I gave unto him commandment, but no temporal commandment gave I unto him. For my commandments are spiritual. They are not natural nor temporal, neither carnal nor sensual. Now, the Lord just did another one of those speaking of which kind of moments, because 34 ends with Adam and his creation, and 35 now, well, let's talk about Adam, and let's talk about the creation. Now, what you need to know here is that agency has always been a part of the plan. So even when Adam and Eve were, were placed within the Garden of Eden, and, and given the, uh, a command, we call it, don't partake of the fruit, there's still agency inherent in that as well. It is a choice that you're going to have to make. I know you wanted to come to earth. You chose that. But now let's actually make it a little bit more real instead of theoretical. And you, you still liking this agency idea? Now that you're starting to feel a little bit more what flesh is, is going to feel like? And you may, I don't know, can you peer outside of Eden and go, yeah, it doesn't look quite as lush outside. Do we really want to descend into a lone and dreary world? Here goes nothing. 
Again, it's that sense of loosing the adversary for a little season at the end of it all. Let's, let's really make sure that you are choosing because there's a choice to be made. And it's not just a temporal one. It's not just about eating physical fruit. There's a spiritual decision that's being made about partaking of the consequences of our decisions. Are you willing to do that, Adam and Eve? Are you willing to digest, to metabolize the consequence of choice? Are you willing to leave the innocence of Eden and go grapple in a fallen world with your fallen selves? It all seemed like a good idea when we were all merely spiritual in pre-mortality. But now that you're, you've taken on flesh, this, it's more than just a temporal commandment. But as you start recognizing the temporal side of things, will you still opt for the spiritual truth that compelled you down this path to begin with? Will you maintain your spiritual direction despite a temporal fall? Well, verse 36, it came to pass that Adam, being tempted of the devil, for behold, the devil was before Adam. Now, this is another one. Well, while we're we're on the subject, verse 36 begins with, we're still on Adam. He was tempted of the devil. But then you get this this long dash. And the second dash, that's usually how it is when we're writing things, right? There's a dash with an interruption. It's almost like parentheses. And then the interruption ends with another dash. Well, whenever you see a dash in Scripture, keep an eye out for another dash later on and ask yourself, is he inserting something here? Here he is. And the second dash comes at the end of verse 39. And 40 comes right back to the idea of Adam being tempted of the devil. But what's he do in the middle? What's he interrupt himself with? Oh, while I'm talking about the devil tempting Adam, let me talk about the devil himself for just a moment. And that's what 36, 7, 8, 9 are all about. For behold, the devil was before Adam. He existed prior to the creation, prior to Eden, prior to the fall. For he rebelled against me. Now we're seeing the war in heaven. Saying, give me thine honor, which is my power. And also a third part of the hosts of heaven turned he away from me because of their agency. And they were thrust down, and thus came the devil and his angels. Now, what's interesting, when, as you see the, the origin story behind the devil and his angels, the way he said it there, he turned away a third of the host of heaven because of their agency. The irony here, it's got to be frustrating for the adversary, where he's fighting against agency in the war in heaven, right? That's not, we don't, we don't want them to have agency because they'll blow it, and then they can't come home. And since I want the glory for bringing everyone home, I want, remember we saw that earlier in 36? Give me thine honor. That's what he's after the whole time. It's his pride that is propelling him into rebellion. I want the Father's throne. I want to take his place. I want his glory. I want his honor. But I certainly don't want to do it the Father's way. Because, I mean, Jesus, what he's offering, not only will the Father still get the glory, but look at all the stuff that that Jehovah is going to have to do to be able to bring that glory back to the Father. He's going to have to atone for their mistakes, their misuse of agency. I, I get a picture of what Gethsemane is going to entail, and I've got to come up with a different idea. To, to me, it's fascinating to, to, to think of the adversary coming up with an alternate plan out of selfishness, not just because I want the glory, but because I want to avoid the cost if it's more exquisite and more sore and more hard to bear than anyone could possibly know, I don't want to do that. Again, think about what Gethsemane would look like for Lucifer if we did not have agency. It'd be a stroll through the garden, not a falling upon one's face. There would be no burden to lift 
far from the infinite cost that Jesus endured. But part of the irony behind all of this is in the, in the adversary's fight against agency, what's the only thing that he had in his favor to, to leverage people's poor choices in pre-mortality? It was agency. Again, that must have ticked him off. That must have been frustrating to no end. It's like, I hate agency, but it's the only thing that I can use right now against them. And that hasn't changed. It's still the only thing he can use against us now. That's got to be frustrating for him. The, the thing he fought against is now his only hope. Well, it's also what he says there in the middle. Give me thine honor, which is my power. Now, I've heard, seen some people, I think, twist that a little bit wrong to suggest, oh, wait a minute, God's power is simply his honor? So is the only reason God has power because we listen to him? Is he dependent upon us giving him that honor? So if, and maybe this is what's part of the adversary's way of thinking, if I can get people to stop giving God honor, then that's sapped his power. Now I can see in a way where they're coming from. It's the side of, of Satan being bound and loose that is on us. It's that post-millennial optimism, okay? So I can see a little where they're coming from. And again, from God's side of things, because he is so selfless and so serious about honoring our agency, I can see where they might suggest that God won't demand our respect or obedience. And so, well, are we giving him? He's not going to lord over us or force his power to, to put us in our place. But the danger of that is it does seem to put God at our mercy when truly we are at the mercy of God. It's interesting that even if you look up honor in that 1828 dictionary to see what might the Lord have meant to a, an 1830 audience in Joseph Smith and others. Give me thine honor. One of the definitions of that is esteem due or paid, which suggests is a little on us. That's what lies behind that other thinking I was just explained. I want them to love me instead of loving you because then I'll have power and you won't. But later there's another definition in Webster that defines honor as true nobleness of mind, magnanimity, dignified respect for character, springing from probity, principle, moral rectitude, a distinguishing trait in the character of good men. Now do we see that it's not about us, it is about God, that his power isn't solely dependent on the honor that we pay him. He has honor, whether or not we honor it, I had a friend once who was struggling and feeling disrespected by everyone around him. And I just remember once he was just almost venting, uh, just he had a good heart, but he just was in a rough place. And it was like, oh, why don't they respect me? And I just remember very clearly feeling there's a difference between commanding respect, which is a phrase you often hear. Oh, that person just commands respect. Well, there's a difference between commanding respect and demanding respect. Respect isn't something you can just demand Give me that. Respect me. That seemed to be what the adversary wanted. No wonder he says, give me thine honor. But if we take that better, fuller definition of honor, can you see why God couldn't respond? Lucifer, I couldn't give you my honor if I wanted. It's not just altering allegiance that we're talking about. It's the kind of life that I live, that you refuse to. This is like the virgin's oil. It's not something I can share. 
God cannot give anyone else his honor, but he can invite us to submit our will to his, to, uh, to exercise our agency in such a way that we can become like him, then honor is something that can be shared, not something that he's giving. Well, as a result of that, verse 38 and 39, the end of this insertion about the fall, behold, there is a place prepared for them from the beginning, which place is hell. The world thinks that hell is a place prepared for the wicked, where in reality, hell is a place prepared for the adversary and those who followed him from premortality. It's not the telestial kingdom. It's outer darkness. That's what hell is. Verse 39, it must needs be that the devil should tempt the children of men, or they could not be agents unto themselves. For if they never should have bitter, they could not know the sweet. Now he's starting to come off of his interruption to go back to this idea of temptation and where it comes from. But that is an interesting insertion. We know that from Lehi, 2 Nephi 2. There has to be an opposition in all things. There needs to be darkness so we can appreciate and even see light. We need to have tasted the bitter so that we can prize the sweet. There were opposite trees in the garden after all, right? Knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And having tasted this one, we're going to spend the rest of our lives trying to find our way back into God's presence to partake of his love and life. Now some have also seen in verse 39, have kind of gone down a, a path that they probably shouldn't, that, oh, well, the devil, it must needs be the devil should tempt the children of men. Oh, so he's, he's playing his role. So did God set him up for that? Like, hey, I need a tempter. I need some opposition in all things. So let's set up Satan. Well, in that case, is it God's fault? Is Satan culpable? Some have done the same thing with Judas Iscariot. Well, if, if Jesus needed to be betrayed, then somebody's got to do it. Well, even there, Jesus once said, it must needs be that offenses should come, but woe be unto him through whom the offenses come. In other words, somebody's going to screw things up, but don't be that guy. And that actually helps me understand this verse as well as the other, that it, it didn't have to be Lucifer, and it didn't have to be Judas. In some ways, human nature, if, if given agency, I mean, think about it this way, who tempted Satan? If there has to be some, some arch enemy that's pulling you away, and that's the only way agency can, can function, then who tempted Lucifer in pre-mortality? No. He just wanted the Father's glory and his honor and his power and his place. He was tempted by himself. And honestly, doesn't that describe us? I think we give the devil too much credit for so much. And we'll see that hinted at at the end of this revelation. I mean, even think about it this way. If a third of the hosts of heaven followed Lucifer, if it wasn't him, it would have been somebody else. If it wasn't Judas, it would have been someone else. Even the idea of good, better, best that President Oaks has taught us, that it's not just evil and good that provides a choice, but if there's a choice between good, better, best, even take evil sin off, the, off the, the table, there's still choices to be made. There's still an exercise of agency. It's just when the devil did what he did, boy, did that extend the, and broaden the spectrum. But like I said, if he hadn't, someone else would. There will be opposition in all things. There will be bitter and sweet. Life itself will present you with that, even sin aside. But back to sin, verse 40, let's get back, uh, end the interruption. Wherefore it came to pass that the devil tempted Adam. And 
he partook of the forbidden fruit and transgressed the commandment, wherein he became subject to the will of the devil because he yielded unto temptation. So here we have the fall. Adam and Eve have partaken of the fruit. They are going to be cast out of the Garden of Eden. They have exercised their agency to a point of saying, Father, we are now prepared to accept the consequences of our decisions. Remember, this is a, a leap, a jump, more than a simple fall. We are now subject to the will of the devil, although we can resist it. And it seems that Adam and Eve do that uh, practically uh, invariably from that point forward. It's the next generation that struggles more. But as a result of that yielding to temptation, of that crossing of the line, that's what transgress means, Verse 41, Wherefore I, the Lord God, caused that he should be cast out from the Garden of Eden, from my presence, because of his transgression. Trans, across, gress, go. He went across that line. It wasn't inherently evil what they did in partaking of the fruit. That's why it wasn't a sin. It was a transgression. Elder Oaks, in his great legal mind, helps us discern between those two. That's why man will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Two different words used in two different meanings. But, as verse 41 goes on, wherein he became spiritually dead, which is the first death, even that same death which is the last death, which is spiritual, which shall be pronounced upon the wicked, when I shall say, depart ye cursed. So now we're tying back into what we saw back in verse 28, about what the Lord will have to say at judgment of depart ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, what is he saying in verse 41 about this first death that's the same death as the last death and it's spiritual? Whoa, you're confusing me again. Sorry, uh, it's really hard for me to, to condescend in terms of my language to make things completely understandable to you. Someday you'll get it better. But in the meantime, it's this first spiritual death. You were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And that first death is a preview of coming attractions as far as the second spiritual death is concerned. Now, Alma taught this, and Samuel the Lamanite taught this in the Book of Mormon. That at Judgment Day, we are brought back into the presence of God. That overcomes Adam and Eve's first spiritual death. Remember, death is always a separation. And a physical death is separating our body from our spirit. And that's on Adam and Eve. But resurrection will bring back our body and spirit. We've already seen the resurrection of the just and the unjust in this section. So by now, Adam and Eve are off the hook as far as physical death is concerned. They brought it upon humanity, but it's Christ overcame it for humanity. So we're even, we're good. Now when it comes to spiritual death, Adam and Eve, you are now separated from the presence of God. First spiritual death. And all of your posterity will be as well. They will grow up in this fallen world with the proclivity to submit themselves to the will of the devil and yield to his temptations. Now, that's on them, but it's also on Adam and Eve. But let me put it this way. I will eventually bring all of them back into my presence. On judgment day, they'll be home with me. And in that moment, the first spiritual death that's on Adam and Eve has been compensated for. It's almost like we're all there in this courtroom and the Lord turns to Adam and Eve and says, you are now free to go. You're off the hook because your choice has been reversed and everyone's back with me. But then all eyes turn to us and Adam and Eve are like, ah, good luck, kids. I hope you repented uh, because now we're in God's presence, but we might have to leave it a second time, not because of Adam and Eve's choices, but because of our own. That's what he's describing in verse 41. The first death, 
leaving God's presence in terms of Adam and Eve is a preview of us having to leave God's presence after the judgment to go to a lesser kingdom, terrestrial or telestial, if we haven't repented. No wonder this section, go out and cry repentance to the world. Declare the gospel with a sound of rejoicing. Prepare the world so they can avoid that second spiritual death. Verse 42 then, he says, Behold, I say unto you that I, the Lord God, gave unto Adam and unto his seed, that they should not die as to the temporal death, until I, the Lord God, should send forth angels to declare unto them repentance and redemption, through faith on the name of mine only begotten Son. Now this we see taught clearly in the Book of Mormon and in the Pearl of Great Price. That, and there's this difference between temporal death and spiritual death. Spiritual death, you are immediately uh, cast out of God's presence. But temporal death, let's hold on for that one for a little while to give them time to prepare. Let's pull these two deaths apart. So what can the middle space be filled with? Yes, your days of probation, but also your days of preparation, where you can now choose to repent and prepare to meet God. You can decide to come back and partake of the fruit of the tree of life in the right way. Now, you're going to need to know how that all works, and so I will send angels from my presence to teach you the plan to declare repentance and redemption through faith on the name of Christ. It's exactly what the angel does for Adam and Eve. It's what Adam and Eve teach to their children. It's what God is doing to Joseph and Smith. Every dispensation head, what is being dispensed upon them? The plan of salvation so that we can use our mortal experience wisely. We are stuck between the spiritual death, that's already happened, we're out of God's presence, but we haven't yet succumbed to the physical death. So we have time still to repent. The second coming hasn't occurred yet. We still have time to repent and prepare. That's what it's for. Verse 43, he says, Thus did I, the Lord God, appoint unto man the days of his probation, which Alma will ultimately correct, and instead of probation, he always changes it to preparation. It sounds a little bit kinder, okay? that by his natural death he might be raised in immortality unto eternal life, even as many as would believe. Now do you understand what to fill this space with, what the purpose of your life should be for? Verse 44, they that believe not, they'll be the ones raised unto eternal damnation. That's the resurrection of the unjust. For they cannot be redeemed from their spiritual fall, because they repent not. Compare that back to verse 43. These are the ones that did repent that can be redeemed from their spiritual fall. They'll be raised to immortality unto eternal life. We'll all be raised to immortality. That's overcoming spirit, physical death. But who will be raised to immortality unto eternal life? Living not just as long as God, but like God. Those are the ones who repent and prepare during their preparatory state. Choice, again, being very clearly presented to us. Would you rather be verse 43 or 44? Verse 45 goes along with the, the negative side. Those who love darkness rather than light, those whose deeds are evil, those will receive their wages of whom they list to obey. In fact, we all will. Whose side are you joining? Which boss are, are you are applying for employment with? God, the Lord on his side? Think about what he's willing to offer you as far as your wages. In fact, he doesn't even consider it a wage. It's a gift. 
that he wants to give us, as opposed to the adversary who has nothing good to give you. Talk about an empty paycheck. Verse 46, But behold, I say unto you, that little children are redeemed from the foundation of the world through mine only begotten. So here he carves out space for this one group that doesn't seem to fit easily in either camp that we've been talking about so far. Yes, they've been separated from God's presence through, through that first spiritual death of Adam and Eve. They're here in this fallen world. But have they become fallen themselves yet? Have, have they yielded unto temptation in order to become subject to the will of the devil? No, they, they, they're innocent. They haven't made bad choices yet. So which side are they on? And the Lord will explain some beautiful things here. Back to 46. Behold, I say unto you that little children are redeemed from the foundation of the world. But notice how. Not simply because of their inherent innocence, but it's through mine only begotten. So they're saved through Christ. Go back and reread the end of, of, of the book of Moroni. When Moroni receives this letter, this is Moroni chapter 8, and his dad explains to him why infant baptism is unnecessary. It's not just a waste of water. It's a denial, in a way, of the atonement of Christ because he pronounces them clean. He redeems them. Now, this is important to understand. Look at verse 47. Wherefore, they cannot sin, for power is not given unto Satan to tempt little children until they begin to become accountable before me. Now, this is where parents of little children sometimes scratch their head, going, um... Are you sure about that? Because I sometimes wonder if my children are, are quick learners. Uh, if so, because I, I swear they do some things that I would consider sinful. So are we just supposed to turn a blind eye to everything that anyone does for their first eight years of life and go, nope, I, I, I can't consider that wrong at all. Well, no, wh what is it that's not sinful? First of all, they can't be tempted by the adversary. So if a little kid says the devil made me do it, well, that they probably heard that from somebody older. Uh, and they're trying to shift the buck and the blame to say, well, it's somebody else's fault. I think we all do that a little too often. Of course, the adversary probably loves it. So, man, I get credit for everything. This is awesome. And th that one, no, I, I didn't even have to tempt you at all. You just gave in to your natural man or natural woman. It happens all the time. Believe me, I don't have to steer you off course very often. You're just not a very good driver. Agency, after all, requires that we take a little bit more responsibility for our choices. And sometimes it's simply us succumbing to the natural man. And when a little child is selfish or mean or unforgiving, even little kids can be. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. But when it is, don't chalk it up to the devil's temptation. If we're natural men and natural women, well, I guess they're natural children. It's just that it's the natural man in smaller form. And how does that not constitute sin? Because the Lord doesn't count it as such. He simply says, nope, I'm not going to call any of that sin. Why do you think he uses the word accountable before me? I'm not going to count it. Elsewhere where it talks about things being accounted unto someone for righteousness, like Abraham offering Isaac, he didn't actually have to go through with it. So he didn't offer Isaac, but God accounted it unto him for righteousness, as if he had. Oh, that counts because you were willing. Compare it to Laman and Lemuel. Well, they actually did sacrifice, but not with a, a heart in the right place, not with a willing mind. So it didn't count for that. 
If someone is proclaimed unaccountable, then I'm going to cover all of that. And especially as children approach the age of accountability. Here, as they begin to become accountable before me. Now it's going to start counting as sin. But up to this point, I'm not going to count any of it against you. Why? Look at verse 48. For it is given unto them even as I will, according to mine own pleasure. That seems to tie back into what we saw at the end of verse 46. Why can't they sin? Well, they're redeemed through mine only begotten. It's not their inherent holiness. It's Christ's atoning blood. Verse 48, 48, it's given unto them. That's how I want it. It's my pleasure. I choose not to have any of that count. And here's why. And the end of verse 48 is fascinating, especially for any of us who are parents or grandparents. Verse 48, why is it not counted? Why does he want it to be that way? Why is he pleased with that setup? Here it is. That great things may be required at the hand of their fathers. And that includes mothers, obviously, as well. Now think about what he just said. I often, I always grew up thinking, oh, those years of unaccountability are for the child's sake. And yes, they are. But according to this verse, those years of unaccountability are for the parents' sake. It's their chance to teach and train and raise those children to teach them correct principles before they let them govern themselves. To teach them to to use their agency well before it starts to count against them. To begin to master the natural boy or natural girl before the adversary can begin to prey upon the natural man and the natural woman. If you think about uh, preseason for any kind of sport, Does it help the athlete? Sure, of course it does. They they get to work out some kinks and practice some things and see. But who does it help the most? It helps the coach. As the coach sees, oh, there's something, that that play doesn't work. Or this, I I think we're going to have to switch somebody out. And who's our best person to put in this position and so on? You see the glory of unaccountable time in sports? And that's what preseason is. Let's all figure this thing out together. It's not going to count against you. Did the quarterback really throw that interception? Yes, it actually happened. But does it count against him? No, it's not not going to be on any of his stats. All these mistakes that are being made, learn from them. And me as a coach, I can really start to see where we're going to have to work on some things when the season actually starts and things really do begin to count against us. Parents, please take advantage of your children's unaccountable time because great things are required of us. I sometimes compare it to baby teeth. When babies are born and the children grow and their teeth come in and they start to brush them, even though their parents know these ones aren't going to be permanent. Now imagine if a parent just said, ah, these ones are going to fall out anyway. Don't even worry about them. It's like anyone who doubts the necessity of a pediatric dentist. It's like, ah, what's the point? Uh, this is, these will, will not be permanent, and, and so why waste any money on it? Well, this is preseason. Because once you get your permanent teeth, permanent is permanent. It will really count. And it'd be a lot, what a shame if they used their permanent teeth to practice on. There's no wiggle room there. there there's, in fact, with teeth, there's not even much of a chance to repent. 
My brother is a doctor and he always laughs at dentists going, all they ever do is drill out and get rid of the things that aren't working. If we did that in medicine, all we would ever do is amputate. <laughs> I'm like, I guess he's got a point there. Man, if that's our only option, then please learn on your practice teeth to take good care of them. Someday it will really start to count against you. So here, parents take advantage of unaccountable time to prepare your children to live well when it does count. We'll see that taught more clearly in section 68 about some of the specific things parents should be doing during their, unaccount their children's unaccountable time. The revelation then ends in verse 49 and 50. Again, I say unto you, whoso having knowledge have I not commanded to repent? See, comparing that to little children, yeah, I don't have to command them to repent because they don't really know what sin or repentance is. They'll, they'll get there. And so use these years to teach them. This is what sin, what you just did to your sister, that, that doesn't count against you. I, you're, you're learning, but I really do want you to learn. You can't do it that way. There's a better way. So let's practice, okay? And you, you, typically they're so eager to practice better and do it right. But for the rest of us, for whom it doesn't come quite so easily, if we have knowledge, then of course we've been commanded to repent. Why do you think I'm giving you these revelations and grind repentance and practically every one of them? Then verse 50, he finishes, He that hath no understanding, it remaineth in me to do according as it is written. And now I declare no more unto you. At this time, amen. I mean, keep your pen out, Joseph. I'll, I'll be speaking to you again shortly. But for now, this is enough for this specific revelation. If you have understanding, you've got to repent. If you don't have understanding, just leave that to me. Uh, it remaineth in me to do according to what is written. And what's written? Both justice and mercy. Believe me, I know exactly where to, where to hang the balance for anyone who's right on the border of accountability whether because of their age or their mental capacity or their, their level of learning, whatever it might be. Just leave that to me. But go and cry repentance to everyone who understands. Why? Because the second coming is somewhere ahead and I want the world to be prepared for it. To me, it's interesting that by the time you get to the end of this section, I, if you've gone slowly like we have, it might be easy to forget the context that we've been talking about the second coming this whole time. The gathering of Israel, the, the last days, signs of the times, second coming, millennial reign, resurrection of the just, resurrection of the unjust, judgment day. This is big picture revelation. But how does he end it all? Can we get back to basics? You need to learn to repent. In fact, even this, this discussion about Adam and Eve and the fall and agency and all of that, to put that in perspective of the second coming, to see the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, this is the plan. This is what your mortal experience was meant to consist of. Use it well. As you are placed with, with choices before you, look back to Adam and Eve and learn Look forward to the second coming and, and judgment day and, and choose well. And best of all, in terms of the way he ends, think of your children and how you are raising them at home. I love that in the context of this 
mind-blowing, soul-stretching revelation about, about eternity itself. He starts with what? My arms of mercy are extended. I've atoned for your sins. I am the mother hen calling you to my protective embrace. In fact, when I taught this in seminary the first time, the, I mean, you spend enough time in the middle verses and it's scary. Uh, the, the eyes and the flesh and the hailstones and, and all these things. And I, and I could see in some of these students' eyes just this concern over the last days and what they might have to endure. In fact, at one point I said, do you know the one place of safety? And they were like, tell me, tell me. And I, and I pulled out a Ziploc bag with a chicken wing in it. I said, anywhere you can get one of these. And they looked at me with such confusion, like, what in the world? Bro Hal has just lost it. He's, we're talking signs of the times and he wants us to run to Kentucky Fried Chicken? Uh, I mean, we're talking flesh from the bone and he holds up a chicken wing? You see, when I taught it in seminary, I started with the scary. I didn't start at the beginning of the section. And as they looked at me in disbelief, I said, oh, go, go back and read the beginning. First two verses, what do you see? And then they were like, oh, okay, I get it. Not a literal chicken wing. We're not going to KFC but a spiritual one. From the very beginning of this revelation, come unto me, so you never have to hear, depart from me. Come be protected under my arm of mercy, so you never have to face the arm of justice. Trust me, come to me, I am calling to you. Please come. Speaking of those wide-eyed seminary students, I remember one particularly who was concerned by it. I could sense that in her. And she raised her hand and said, Brother Halverson, why, why do the last days have to become so bad? And there was just this, this feeling, this weight that she was feeling that I could sense too. And I said to her, that is such an important question, but do you mind if I rephrase it? Why do the last days have to get so bad? You're right, but why do the last days have to get so good? The church has never been better organized on this planet than now. It's never been this large with this much priesthood authority or priesthood power. With people, women and men out serving, we've never had this level of missionary force. This number of temples dotting the earth. What an incredible time to be alive. Go back and, and reread section 29 and you will see both the dreadful and great day of the Lord. You'll see words like ripe and stubble and burn and darkened, blood and fall and weeping and wailing, indignation, hail, flies, maggots, depart, fire. But you will also see words like reveal myself, dwell in righteousness, Resurrection, crown, new heaven, new earth, not one hair lost, gathering. This will be a glorious day if we will only prepare and repent. If we will cry repentance to all nations, if we will gather our fellow chicks back to the protective embrace of our mother hen, especially brothers and sisters if we'll raise our children well. How do we prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ? Oh, there's so many big picture things that we feel like we should be doing. How to build the kingdom and gather Israel. Yes, all of those things are true. 
But what's the last thing the Lord wants ringing in our ears? Teach your children. Love your family. Build your home. And as you bind Satan within the walls of your own home, that is a foretaste of millennial peace. From your home, it will spread through your neighborhood, from wards to stakes to, to nations, until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth, even as the waters cover the sea. I long for that day. And I pray that in the meantime, I'm teaching my children well.